pump fake. Wallace picked off. Nick Collins. Nick Collins on the return inside the 10. Leaps for the touchdown. Don. Yeah. This is the only chance we're going to have to do this show for 10 years. <laughs> Thank God. So we better do it right. That's right. It's the sportscasters. Oh, what happened to, what happened to my music? Did you, did you, did oh, you kill it, it on down. me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, give, me, give me that back a little bit more. Okay. I want to have that just kind of playing softly as we introduce episode number 33 of the sportscasters. It's the end of the lockout. Super spectacular. I know Don and I are thrilled that the NFL lockout is over. Absolutely. And we play this music by the now deceased Jeff Buckley. Of course, it's called Hallelujah. And that's how I feel today. Hallelujah. Don, hallelujah, the lockout is over. Without any uh, damages, really. We're going to lose the the Hall of Fame game. Which, there was a small tear. Dripped on my face <laughs> as the commissioner announced the loss of the Hall of Fame game. It is an exciting game. For I everybody. wanted to see three plays from Jay Cutler <laughs> and then the backup quarterback come in. <laughs> but it is episode number 33 of the Sportscasters in all seriousness. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Ross. It's our second show this week. Of course, our first show, episode number 32, you can listen to. It featured Ben Nicholson-Smith on the Major League Baseball trade deadline. And Matt Crossman from the Sporting News. We talked about all kinds of different things with Matt. But this is a new show. Again, I said episode 33, the Sportscasters End of the Lockout. Super spectacular. We're going to do a football three things in a couple of seconds. And then we're going to have an interview with Gabe Feldman. And we're going to talk about all the confusing legal stuff that's involved with this lockout. Gabe, of course, you've probably seen him in the last couple of days on the NFL Network talking about all the legal ramifications of what's going on. we got a good half an hour with Gabe. He's a very, very nice guy. Then we're going to the top. We're going to do five on fantasy. We premiered that last week. We're going to try it again this week in our uh, Super Lockout Spectacular. And after that, we're going to have an interview with Kerry J. Byrne, who runs a football site called coldhardfootballfacts.com, somewhat similar to Football Outsiders, what Aaron Schatz does. Aaron Schatz, of course, was on Episode 4, our Super Bowl show. So, really, we've went from episode 4 to episode 33 with not much National Football League. Yeah, really, just a play, little bit of the playoffs. and Well, yeah, episode 4 was the Super Bowl show. Right. So, here we are, episode 33, and it's the first time we can officially say that the NFL is back. And on top of talking to Gabe Feldman and Kerry J. Byrne, we are also going to talk with John P. Lopez, who writes for SportsIllustrated.com. And also has a talk radio show in Houston. 
and we're going to talk all about free agency. So we're going to cover the National Football League in all kinds of different ways today. We're going to talk about the legal stuff. We're going to talk about fantasy football. We're going to talk about statistics and how statistics make football easier to predict. And we're going to talk about the free agent market. And we're going to get all that started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. I'm going to kick it off this week with a little bit of a, a, a primer here on what's to come in the NFL now that the lockout has been fixed. Real quick, uh, the owners got 53% to 47%, so that's a small moral victory I shouldn't say small. That's considerable money when you're talking about billions of dollars. The old deal was a lot closer to 50-50. The players, um, they got a victory in the side of their health, it seems like. There's going to be some rules for in practice that make the games... Yeah, uh, these guys can barely practice anymore. Yeah, and they are at, during a bye week, they have the right to five consecutive days off, just little things. Um, the 16 to the 18 game schedule can be revisited in 2013, but the players have to approve any change, so that's not going to stop any football. Now, as far as the important days go, um, players could return this morning at 10 a.m., and teams could also start making trades and begin conversations with free agents from any teams. Uh, No player can officially sign until Friday at 6 p.m., and teams have no window this year to negotiate exclusively with their own free agents. So any free agent that you're team favorite team had uh it probably is less likely to stay around if he had any thoughts about leaving to begin with um when veteran free agents sign with teams they will not be able to participate in any practice weight training or workouts until the beginning of the league year slated to be august 4th that's kind of odd i'm not sure what the point of that is necessarily but maybe the vets just wanted a little extra time off Rookies drafted and undrafted will be allowed. I can clarify that for you. Okay. Uh, that has to do with the players wanting to have a little bit of extra time to recertify as a union. Okay. And the they kind of came to a compromise on that where they're opening the facilities to expedite that process because now the players can turn in their cards and vote right at the facility today. Okay. But the, the union did want to make sure they had enough time to consider and ultimately reestablish your union so they don't have to run right back to practice correct okay um at the beginning or tomorrow teams will begin reporting to camp 15 days before each club's preseason games i won't go through the list of all the teams but right some start tomorrow some start thursday some start friday two start on the weekend right it's basically 10 10 10 2 players currently under contract have to report to their teams wednesday and thursday teams have until 4 p.m on thursday to waive or cut players and the only game that was lost, like we said, was the Hall of Fame game. The NFL's already published its list of free agents. And that's it. By August 4th, all teams must be within the salary cap, which is going to be interesting for some teams because last year was an uncapped year. Teams like Dallas, I think, are currently over. But you'll touch on them. So that's basically, in a nutshell... Where we are with the football season now, I'm sure as we get into the interviews later on, they'll get more in depth. My first thing, the first big piece of the free agent market has already fallen. And again, these contracts aren't official. It's, it's almost similar to the way the NBA does it, 
where you're going to know what the agreed-upon contract is before it's officially signed. And the first big name is Charles Johnson from the Carolina Panthers. He had 10.5 or 11.5, I believe I said, sacks last season. And he signed a huge deal to stay in Carolina today. It's six years, $72 million, 30 of it's guaranteed. $46 million of it is in the first three years of the contract. So you got to think that they probably won't be cutting him before that third year. And he should earn about $46 million, you know, if not more. So a really big contract for Charles Johnson, the defensive tackle, and definitely someone that I think a lot of teams were interested in. So congratulations to Carolina on being the first team to retain one of their big, big free agents. But the question I have, Don, is do you think that some of that money is D'Angelo Williams' money and that he's going to fall through the cracks here for them now? It certainly looks that way. And if I'm Carolina, I don't want to spend a lot of money on a running back anyway. You're, you're not a good team to begin with. You already have a younger, comparable running back in Jonathan Stewart there. And there's areas you can certainly use improving that aren't the running back like I complained about the Bills drafting terribly last episode about they drafted something like three running backs in the first round since they've been to the yep. playoffs last so you just you don't need any you don't need a running back and to be to rebuild a team especially considering they already have one there my second thing also regarding football uh since this is our post lockout spectacular uh, <clears throat> It's the Sportscasters End of the Lockout Super Spectacular Show. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> uh, Carson Palmer and the Mike Brown situation is getting kind of ugly at this point. Stupid. Uh, yeah, Carson has been very public about how he wants to continue to play football, just not with the Bengals. Mike Brown has said that, quote, I honestly like Carson Palmer. He was a splendid player for us. He's a good person. I wish him well, and he has retired. That is his choice. So Carson Palmer, uh, who is not retired, that's very finger quotes, retired. They're going to force him to retire is what they're saying at this point. How does that help them? I have no idea. How does that help the Cincinnati Bengals? Look, there's teams out there who need quarterbacks. We're talking about Kevin Cobb. Like, he is the second coming of Dan Marino. Right. That's how much of a premium there is on quarterbacks right now. You have a piece that you can trade... That is going to make your team considerably better. But instead, you're going to walk around all macho, ego. I'm Mike Brown. Nobody tells me what to do. I do what I want to do. Well, how does that help the Cincinnati Bengals? I have no idea. Uh, Carson Palmer, to show you how much he hates playing in Cincinnati, is slated to make $11.5 million there next year. So if he is really going to stick to his guns and Mike Brown's going to stick to his guns, he's going to just... He's, gonna, he's willing to eat almost $12 million. You know what? But here's the thing. He was the first overall pick. He's made a ton of money already. Right. And he sold his house. He's not going back. He, he almost has put himself in a position where he can't go back. Who would respect him if he did? You right, know? True. And the stupidity here does not lie with Carson Palmer. Look at When was... I heard, I heard them say, you know, people say that Carson, or Mike Brown said, Carson Palmer signed a contract. He needs to live up with his contract. Well, we're, in a second, we're going to talk about six players who have been cut already. Right, yeah. So yeah, don't, NFL, don't give me this live up to a contract. Come on. Yeah, NFL contracts without, there's nothing guaranteed. So. And if I'm a Bengals fan, I'm furious with this. I'm not a Bengals fan. I'm furious anyway. <laughs> Mike Brown, how does this help your team? This team is a joke. 
Cincinnati Bengals have been a joke. They're going to be a joke because this guy is an idiot. And they put that it, it, excuse me, they put that on display in Hard Knocks a few years ago. And everyone laughed at them. That awful first-round pick that they made, the tackle from Alabama, whose name is slipping me right now, he was nothing but a big, fat mess, couldn't play football. And they, they didn't bring him in on time. Then he broke his ankle. They've never gotten anything out of him. He was the sixth overall pick. I can think of other picks they've blown, like Ajana Carter and David Klinger. They can't draft. They signed stupid free agents. They signed criminals like Tank Johnson. They're a terrible organization. <laughs> Pac-Man Jones. And here they are with a yeah, Pac-Man Jones. Here they are with a chance to improve their team, to make their team better. Trade Carson Palmer. He doesn't want to be there. Take that asset, turn it into something else, and make your team better. And even if even if you trade it for nothing but draft picks this year, this is the year to be bad, especially at the quarterback position, because you've got Andrew Luck coming out in the draft. I mean, they going into it probably have as real a good a look at that pick as anybody does this year. And they drafted Andrew Dalton from TCU, who they think can be a serviceable player and who is going to be their starter either way. Because guess what, Carson Palmer is not honoring that contract, no matter how much you want him to. Carson Palmer is gone. So Mike Brown, get the stick out of your ass and make a trade. Real quickly to be a stat boy here, real quick. Charles Johnson had 12 sacks last year. Okay. One thing I forgot to mention on my timeline, and you brought it up, is there will be no hard knocks. So maybe more yeah, no. important than the uh, the Hall of Fame game is that hard knocks will be gone. And I'll look up the Bengals draft pick that was wasted. Andre Brown, I think his name is. Or... That sounds that sounds right. It's his first name's Andre. He's big and fat and useless, and he played at Alabama. My second thing, my man, my man Mickey Loomis has a tough job the next few days. The Saints have half of their players that they need, half of the 90 under contract right now. They need to sign about 45 players. They have the most free agents in the National Football League at about 26 free agents. They, they have so many question marks. It, as a Saints fan, it's fun. But it's nerve-wracking. I want Roman Harper back in the worst way. Roman Harper's probably our best unrestricted free agent. What are they going to do about Reggie Bush? Are they going to pay Reggie Bush $11 million? I doubt it, but I didn't think they would pay him $8 million last year, and they did. Are they going to keep Reggie Bush? Are they going to let Reggie Bush go? But that can, make you can they afford they Reggie them? Bush? You know what? No. Angry is a strong word, but... It wouldn't make me angry. It... it I guess the only thing that would make me angry is if they said, we let Roman Harper walk because we so wanted we to keep Reggie Bush. Bush. Okay. That would make me angry because I think Roman Harper is really, really important. But they are just – the Saints are going to be really, really busy. And I mention them because it's kind of just a glimpse into what the whole league faces. I mean the Saints aren't the only team that have – teams need to get to 90 players. Right. 90 players need to be at camp. There's teams like the Bills and I think Tampa Bay. Bills are about forty million under the cap. I think I read like Tampa Bay is like fifty nine million. <laughs> like ridiculous numbers below the the floor, which which is kind of a fun thing too for uh, that I didn't mention, but that there is that very high salary floor now. So teams like the Bills that are notorious for not spending money are going to have to. Right, and and despite that, it's still a deal that people say is good for. Small market teams. So that's a positive for the Bills. And uh, Gabe Feldman is going to clarify some of that and talk about why the the deal is actually okay for the Bills. And uh, it's not going to be a deal that's going to 
expedite their trip to California or Toronto, <laughs> wherever people want to, to say that they're going to, going to be. But the Saints are on their way. They're signing undrafted free agents today, uh, probably doing the best that they can. God bless you, Mickey Loomis. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with all those darn free agents. Andre Smith was the, Andre uh, Smith, that's was right. the offensive tackle. My third thing this week, I'm going to butcher this name, but uh, Mark Herzlich, congratulations in a big way. Good dude. Uh, 2008 All-American linebacker, had a rare form of bo- bone cancer. He came back from it. He had 65 tackles for BC in 2010. Um, ended up signing with the Jets today. So congratulations, best of luck. Uh, he beat cancer, so he can't have much nerves about this. Uh, good for him. Good guy, too. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the reports that I know he's been featured on Real Sports a few times and other places. He's just a really nice kid, and he was he was one of those guys a lot of people said would never play football again. You know, you hear these stories all right. the time. When, and whenever people tell you you're never going to do something again, there's something in the human spirit that kind of helps you rally up. And uh, this is a great example of that, and I'm really glad for him, too. What was the team? The Giants. The Giants. Good, good for the Giants and good for him. Yeah, CBS Sports' Will Brinson tweets, uh, if the Giants were to allow Herzlich to sprint onto the field with the American flag and 9-11, America might explode. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, that would be awesome. That's another – when we talked to Peter King on this show months ago, I think one of the last things we said is, man, I don't want to be the person who has to cancel football in, in New York on 9-11. And luckily no one's going to have to do that. My third thing – the Ravens and the Cowboys have kind of reminded us that football is a business indeed. And the Ravens today have cut or have let these players know that they will be cut. Derek Mason, Willis McGahee, Todd Heap. Now the Cowboys have made similar noise, cutting Marion Barber, Roy Williams, Leonard Davis, and kicker Chris Brown. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Here we go. That goes to show you a little bit about... I mean, Derek Mason's the equivalent of Pittsburgh cutting Heinz Ward. So consistent, always there to catch the passes. And he's a guy that they talked out of retirement last year. I wonder if he just won't retire. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Uh, and Marion Barber, my, my uh, based on nothing bold prediction last week was that D'Angelo Williams would end up in Dallas. Just seemed like the flashy move they t- like to make. I came now to realize that they're in kind of a cap problem, but... Maybe that helps, and I could see him going there if they don't love to shard choice to be an every down back. And I think one thing we'll definitely do in five on fan- five on fantasy today is talk about how McGahee leaving impacts Ray, Ray Rice, value. and yeah. we'll talk a little bit about how Roy Williams leaving maybe helps Miles Austin or how that affects the Cowboys' offense because they do have a lot of players that are usually drafted. Before we can get to five on fantasy, we have to stop. We're going to interview Gabe Feldman from the NFL Network. NFL.com, professor at Tulane University in New Orleans. And we're going to have an interview with Gabe. Then we'll come back from Five on Fantasy, and then we'll set you up from there. So we'll be right back with Gabe Feldman. Our next guest is an associate professor of law and the director of the sports law program at Tulane University Law School. He has extensive experience in the field of sports law. 
He has re represented a variety of sports entities while in the private practice of law and st still serves as a consultant for a number of clients in the sports industry. He is the co-author of Sports and Law, Cases and Materials, one of the leading sports law casebooks in the country. He is the editor of the Sports Lawyers Journal and has published articles in a number of law journals. He has appeared on the NFL Network and submitted columns at NFL.com to provide legal insight to the lockout in terms of the agreed-upon CBA. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the distinguished Gabe Feldman. How are you doing today, Gabe? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing very good. Very excited to have football back. Very excited to have you on and kind of explain to me how it got back. I am far from a legal expert, and I have a bunch of questions about this CBA and revenue sharing and all these different words that we've heard in the last few days. Um, so I think I have the right guy, don't I? I think you do. <laughs> right. I've been talking about for the last five months. Yes, exactly. So the lockout is over, and I think the first thing that everyone wants to do, I guess it's kind of, a, it's kind of our society, is they want to know, well, who won this battle that lasted since March? Is there a winner, in your opinion, or do you think that both sides had wins and losses, and that's why they were able to come to an agreement? Yeah, I think you hit it there at the end. I do think both sides got a lot of what they wanted, didn't get all of what they wanted, and that's why they were able to reach a compromise. Uh, if you come into a deal and one side gets everything or one side asks for everything, they're not going to get it, you're not going to get a deal. And I think that's where we were early on. And through extensive negotiations that we've read all about, um, I, I think this is, and this is a cliche, but I'll use it anyway, this was a win-win for the players and the owners. I, I think... When you're talking about dividing up nine plus billion dollars in revenues in a healthy, profitable business, um, there really are no losers. And the system that they came up with, where the owners and players share almost 50% of revenues, the players will get 48% of the whole pie, and you get a 10 year deal with no opt outs. I mean, that's ideal from a fan's perspective, but it's also great from a player and owner perspective because I think they've gotten to a model that is healthy for big market owners, for small market owners, and for players. So I do think this is a win overall. Since both sides, we've already said, have won, what are some victories that the players achieved in negotiating this CBA? Well, they were able to hold off on the owners taking too much of their revenue back. Remember, the, the players essentially would have been happy taking the 2006 deal, uh, and the owners wanted to scale back their percentage of overall revenue to somewhere in the lower 40%. And that's with taking some expenses off the top. The owners now agreed with the players that there'd be no billion or two billion taken off the top. Instead, it's just one big revenue pie, and the players get 48% of that. So that's a win in a sense there for the players. They also get a win uh, on a number of safety issues. We're, we've all become aware of how significant concussions have become for players, uh, retired and current players. And so there's scaling back in terms of the number of contact practices you can have. And I think the other two big victories for the players in terms of money is that the minimum salaries, which affect a, far no a high number of players, minimum salaries have gone up significantly, and the minimum amount that the teams can pay has gone up significantly. So we talk all the time about a salary cap, but there's also now a more strict salary floor to ensure that teams will spend right around the same amount. So you won't have one team spending $130 million, another team spending $90 million. They're all going to be tied pretty closely around that, well, now $123 million mark. What were some of the victories for the owners then? 
Well, the owners got some money back. Um, they were looking at a system where they felt that the players were getting too much money, and by pushing it back down to 48%, uh, that was a number they were more comfortable with. And, and I really think in a lot of ways that was their biggest victory here was scaling back on, on how much the money made. And also, I think both the players and the owners got a win in terms of the, the rookie pay scale. And the owners were pushing for this more, but the players agreed with it, too, that these unproven rookies were being paid too much because they'd never stepped step foot on a, on a professional football field. And in some cases, they were making more than 99% of players in the league were making. The owners needed to change that system, and I think the players did too because it was hurting the veterans. Now we've got more money to go to the owner's pocket, which can then be shared to the veteran player's pocket. So I think the rookie cap and the revenue split were the two big wins for the owners. In 2006, and you mentioned it a second ago, in 2006 the vote was something to two, and uh, the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals were the two people that voted against the plan, and I fully expected, I, I, we're calling from Buffalo, New York, we filed this through the eyes of the Bills in a large uh, extent. And I fully expected that this deal would be another one that Ralph Wilson would vote against. But it turned out that the vote was 30 to zero with, or 31 to zero with only Oakland abstaining. Uh, what, what was it that got Ralph Wilson to agree to this deal? And is this a deal that will help keep the Bills in Buffalo in the long term? Or in the long term, is this a deal that we won't see the Bills finish the 10-year agreement in Buffalo? Well, I think it's a deal that helps small market teams, and Buffalo obviously will fit into that category. And I think the reason that Ralph Wilson and other small market owners were happy with this is that along with taking some money back from the players and having a, I think, more reasonable rookie pay system, there was also increased revenue sharing among the owners. That was agreed to essentially at the owners' meeting last week. And so, so that'll help these small market teams out and make it, again, more manageable and more financially sustainable for whether it's Green Bay, New Orleans, Buffalo, any of these small market teams. Now, whether that means they stay in Buffalo, that's a very different issue, but I think it does make it easier for any team to stay in its small market. On Friday, the owners had a press conference and kind of declared the lockout over, and at that point, we had a lot of players really upset. Can you take us through what happened between Friday and the agreement, and do you think the move by the owners on Friday was kind of necessary? Did someone need to make a move there to make sure that things were negotiated on time and that they didn't lose any of the revenue from the first week of the preseason? Well, that was one of the strangest things I've ever seen in a negotiation. I've never seen anything like that happen before. The owners ratified their proposal, held a press conference, and conducted interviews where they were essentially celebrating and saying it's great to have football back. We want to thank the players. We want to thank the judges. We want to thank the mediators, everyone involved. And the players, meanwhile, were sitting there saying, wait a minute, what are you celebrating? We haven't signed off on this yet. In fact, we haven't had a chance to look at it yet. And there were some terms in that proposal, and it really was only a proposal at that point, that the players weren't happy with. And again, some of it was just a timing issue. They hadn't had time to look at the proposal. Some of it had to do with the timing of the recertification of the union. The owners had them on a very tight timeline and had a tight timeline for the reformation of the CBA. And the reason those two issues are significant, uh, with respect to recertification, the players' argument all along is that they have a right 
to choose to be in a union or not be in a union, and that's a significant choice to be made, and it impacts legal rights, which we can talk about later if you want. Yeah. And they didn't want the owners dictating when they'd be forming their union or reforming their union. That was one. Two was there are certain issues that cannot be negotiated unless you are a union. And those are a lot of the non-economic issues, which are the drug testing, pension disability, and review of commissioner discipline. And the plan the owners had in place was three days after, if by three days after the union had reformed, they couldn't negotiate any final deal on those non-economic terms, then they reverted back to the 2006 deal. And the players didn't want that because the players want some changes. And so I think the players were unhappy both about the timeline they were given for recertifying the union and then for negotiating these non-economic issues before they became final. So where does everything stand right now? The players will be entering the facilities, and the reason for that is so that they can get these cards filled out. Is that correct? That that's the process they're going to use to certify? They're going to do that right in the buildings? Yeah, so we got a compromise, which is what we needed to get all along here. And the players will get more time to recertify. They can do it in camp. Uh, negotiations can start with free agents, but nothing will become official until the union has reformed and they have finalized that CBA. But instead of a July 30th deadline, which was in that initial proposal on Thursday, the deadline is now August 4th. So it gives both sides what they want. It gives the players time to recertify time to negotiate those non-economic terms, but also gives the owners what they want in that the league year officially will not start until the union is back and a CBA is formed. And we didn't have that on Thursday. That's some of what was hammered out over Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And when, when things really did go off the rails briefly on Thursday night, cooler heads prevailed and negotiating teams got back together because, as you mentioned earlier, they realized that it would be uh, crazy for lack of a better word, to hold this deal up and possibly lose hundreds of millions of dollars by missing preseason games just because they couldn't agree on the timing of recertification. All of, that, all of these things that you mentioned that are left, it, it kind of scares me a bit, but it's, it's all a formality and everything should just kind of sort out itself over the next couple of days very smoothly? Well, some of it is. Some of it's clearly a formality. You just need to take votes. Um, recertification of the union, reforming of the union, all the players need to do is show that they have 51% or 50% plus one support of their players. And again, the players wanted to do that by voting in camp. That's what they're going to do. That, that should be a formality, assuming, which we assume to be the case, assuming the players want to reform their union. The only thing where they're, they're, it's less than a formality is negotiating these final non-economic terms. But I don't think that should be anything that stops in the way stops them from getting the final CBA. Remember, they were negotiating these terms back in March before the players decertified their union, so they'll pick up where they, where they left off. And these issues were never going to hold up a deal. They were issues that needed to be resolved, but they were just put on hold because they couldn't be resolved while the players had decertified. So I, so I wouldn't worry about that. I, we are out of the woods. It's not officially done until that CBA is signed, but it's as close to officials as we can get right. It's as close to official as we can get right now. As well as the CBA, they've been negotiating a revenue sharing plan, and it seems what they've agreed upon is a plan that will tax the highest earning teams. And this is definitely something that will affect Buffalo, where we are, and New Orleans, and Green Bay, all the smaller markets. Can you kind of explain the revenue sharing plan that they've agreed upon? 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen the details yet, but but you but you've uh, you've hit on it that it's essentially going to place a tax on some of the bigger market teams or the higher revenue teams, and that money will be redistributed to the smaller market teams. And, and if you think about the system the NFL has in place, they have more revenue sharing among their big market and small market teams than any other league in the country, and that's because they split their national TV deal equally. And that's a, at this point a four billion dollar deal that each team splits equally. They also split their licensing revenue equally. Uh, no other sports league in the country has as much revenue sharing as we do in the NFL. We've now increased that revenue sharing because some changes had to be made here to help some of these smaller market teams out because revenues for the big market teams continue to grow. Some of the small market teams just can't quite keep up with it. And it's not just in terms of putting money into player salaries, which is obviously important, but we're also talking about renovating stadiums, building new stadiums, all the things that you would do with revenue that comes into you. I was just going to ask you about building new stadiums because I did hear there was something... Uh, there was some kind of agreement involved in this somehow about money that would be put towards uh, new stadiums or or something like that. It, it seemed a little bit of a gray area to me. Uh, Buffalo is definitely somewhere that probably down the road could use a new stadium. Was that something that they talked about during these talks? Yeah, and that's been in place. I mean, there's a fund set aside uh, to help these teams build new stadiums that, that teams have been able to tap into in the past, and, and they were able to maintain that because I think – the owners and the players, too, recognize that part of the key of having a successful sports league is getting fans to come to games. And with big screen televisions and HD and now 3D, the owners are almost competing with TV. Fans say, you know, should I spend the money on a ticket and sit outside and it's uncomfortable and it's cold and I don't have as good of a view as I do on my own couch? And so they're trying to come up with ways to lure fans to the stadiums um, but they obviously want their TV market too, but but they recognize they need fans in the seats, and so they, they've got to create these incentives for these owners to build the bigger stadiums, and that incentive um, comes with obviously a financial tag, and this will help with the financial tag. You know, it's interesting you say that because nothing beats getting up on Sunday morning, eating your breakfast at home, and just turning on the big screen TV. I have two TVs in my living room. I have the NFL ticket. I put my game on the big screen, put the NFL ticket on the second screen, and there's not a lot of reason for me to go to a game. I have everything I need right there. you know. And one stadium that I think does a really good job of drawing people out is uh, the one in Pittsburgh, Heinz Field, because they have a huge area. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Heinz Field, where they do show a lot of the other games that are going on, and you can eat in there for Manny Brothers sandwiches, and uh, we're getting a little bit off topic, but I, I just thought of that when you said that. Yeah, um, no, and, it, and it's a challenge, and I, and I think uh, team owners and, and owners of facilities are, are really thinking about it to make it a uh, experience that is more attractive than the experience watching on your couch. Clearly, they want people watching on the couch. You don't get $4 billion television deals unless plenty of people are watching on the couch. But they're also making money off of ticket sales and concession sales and suite revenue, and they've got to do something to make the fan experience at the game more attractive, and they are. I mean, they've got creative people thinking about it, whether it's you push a button and the food gets delivered to you instead of walking around, or it's screens at your seat, or these other areas where you can watch out-of-town games. I I think you'll see more and more of that in the next decade or so. Last week, we had a punter calling Drew Brees a douchebag, and um, there was all this talk about the the Brady legal case. Is is that all going to be sorted out now? There wasn't any holdup with people wanting $10 million or anything like that. Where do we stand legally with the lawsuits that needed to be cleared up for the CBA to be ratified? 
Yeah, this is good timing. The, the Brady v. NFL class action antitrust suit officially settled about 30 minutes ago. Oh. The, the players and the owners filed notice with the federal district court in Minnesota saying that they had settled the case. The judge now has to sign off on that, but that'll be a formality. So that case will be out of the way, and you're right. Uh, Logan Mankins and Vincent Jackson, we heard some of the named plaintiffs had made demands or people had made demands on their behalf that they get some compensation for putting their name on the lawsuit, whether that was removal of the franchise tag or payment of $10 million. We heard rumors where we never really got confirmation, and the players denied that it was ever the case. So I don't know what was true and what was not true there. All we do know is that the case has settled, and as far as we know, none of those individual plaintiffs got additional compensation. Another thing, the Brady suit is out of the way. Okay, that's gone. Beautiful. Another thing we heard about last week is that the retired players wanted uh, more of a role in this, but the CBA that's been agreed upon uh, has reportedly added one billion dollars in new funds for retired players. Is that where we're at, and is this something that uh, the retired players will be satisfied with? Well, I don't know if they'll be satisfied, but certainly a a market improvement over the old system. And that, that Carl Eller lawsuit, which was filed after the Brady suit, uh, added another layer of complexity to an already incredibly complex legal situation. And Eller and his attorney, within the last few weeks, had said that they won't hold up the CBA deal with their lawsuit. They will work on trying to get additional gains once the CBA is settled. So I, I don't expect the retired players to go away, but they weren't going to stop the CBA from being signed in the league starting because they recognize that if they hurt the league by causing games to be canceled, which, again, I don't think they ever intended to do, that's only going to hurt them because there's less, less revenue to go around. So I think they're, they're still going to be pushing for more of a voice in things going forward, but they did not hold up the final settlement of this case. Last week uh, there was some talk, or there was actually there was a meeting where the GMs were able to learn some things about the CBA and ask questions. Are they going to do that again? Because I knew there was some, still some questions about shells and if shells were allowed in practices, and uh, there were still some rules that everyone didn't understand. Is, is this, are things going to be gone over again so nobody is in violation, or are the owners and GMs going to have to kind of learn the rules as they go on? No, I think it's going to be an ongoing educational process. You're right. They did hold that seminar la end of last week. Uh, ended up being, I think, Friday morning or Friday afternoon, right bef the weekend before the deal got signed. But it was cut short a little bit in part because it wasn't a final deal yet, and they were worried about going through the rules that may have been subject to change. And so I think there's still com some confusion among GMs and front office personnel. And there's going to be an ongoing educational process where teams and agents and players um, and, and representatives from both sides have to get up to speed on the new rules, and that's not going to be a quick process. When you've got a 300-plus page CBA, you can't learn that overnight, and so they're going to be in constant contact, my guess is the GMs and front office people, with the legal counsel from from the league, and player agents will be in touch with the legal counsel for the Players Association. So I think there's a lot that both sides still have to learn. And remember, there's still some stuff that's undecided in terms of those non-economic issues. But, but I think there is some uh, inevitable confusion anytime you get an entirely new deal with some pretty significant shifts from, from the old deal. So I, I do think that the, G the GMs are in for the ride of their lives right now. I mean, they are going to have a crazy frenetic two weeks coming up. I don't want to offend you with this next question, 
but I do want to ask you, uh, there was some, some, some people, and I won't name them because I don't want you to be furious with them. They had tweeted that once the lawyers left the room, uh, things finally got done. Is that fair? To, to sing well, about the lawyers uh, like that? Or I'm what, not what's offended, going on but I, I appreciate um, you prefacing the question with that. Uh, this was an interesting situation because you've got lawyers on each side who have been doing this for a long time and have been involved in this business for a long time and really wanted to do everything they possibly could to represent the best interests of their clients, and that's what lawyers are paid to do. There were some personality conflicts between uh, one of the head outside lawyers for the for the PA and one of the lead lawyers for the NFL. And I think the idea was that the players and owners and many of them thought, look, we just need to solve these financial issues. We shouldn't get too wrapped up in personality conflicts and we shouldn't get too wrapped up in some of the legal issues. But that was inevitable. Once the players decertified their union and brought the antitrust suit, you had to have lawyers in the room. Uh, I think lawyers get blamed for often complicating things, but, but they are necessary complications, I mean, things that have to get taken care of one way or the other. So I, I don't know that it was lawyers in general that were being blamed. I, I just think there were some relationship issues here. Things did seem to move along once it got to be uh, one-on-one with either the commissioner and D. Smith or just some players and owners with the commissioner and D. Smith. So I do think it helped the process, but this deal would not have gotten done without Jeff Pash. Uh, without Jeff Kessler, without Bob, Bob Batterman. I mean, they were there to help guide this along, and they're still there to help guide it along. So even if the lawyers are not in the room, the lawyers are going to be right outside the room because the people in the, in the room need to talk to the lawyers. So, you know, I know some of the lawyers get a, got a bad name out of this, but, but they did a great job representing each side's interest. And, that, again, that's what they're paid to do. They're often paid to be the bad guy. And they get blamed for a lot of the things that really aren't necessarily their fault. Um, but obviously the deal got done with them there. You know, whether progress was made with or without them in the room, I'm not sure. Um, but, but, I, but I did hear that talking point that the lawyers just need to leave the room. And, and that's not unique to the NFL. You hear that all the time. And, you know, I, my interpretation of it as things are going, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that we absolutely needed the lawyers to put, the, to put all of the ideas that were in the room in the proper writing so that things could be voted on. Isn't that correct? And when Oh, there's no question. Yeah. There's no question. And that's what I'm saying, inside the room versus outside the room. That, that okay, you need yeah. it at some point. You, you can't get this kind of complicated deal done without lawyers writing it up, not just the CBA itself, but also the settlement of these lawsuits. And this so the lawyers were an essential part of the process, and they're an essential part of any big deal. This deal is no different. The sportscasters are here with Gabe Feldman. He is at Sports Law Guy on Twitter. You can also see him on the NFL Network and read his work on NFL.com. Just a couple more questions before we let you go. Another issue that they seem to kind of just put to the side for now is the idea of an 18-game schedule. Is this something that will come back up over the course of this 10-year CBA, or is that a dead issue now until they renegotiate the CBA? Well, the, the league can't unilaterally increase it to, to 18 games, so if they do, it have to come with the permission of the players. I don't know that it's completely dead, but I think it's pretty dead for a while. Uh, I just think with the safety issues out there right now and the big move, part of the big move in this new CBA or this new settlement agreement was towards player safety. It's tough to say we're concerned with our player safety and we want to limit injuries, and yet we want to add two games to the regular season. So if that does come, I don't think it will come for a while. Um, it's not as if 
the general sentiment among the fans is that they want two more games in the regular season. Uh, I think you talk to as many fans who say they're happy with 16 as who would say they want 18. So uh, it's a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it in a way thing right now where revenues continue to increase. And the owners and players are always looking for new revenue streams. They, the owners thought about 18 games as a, as a new revenue stream. I don't see getting back to that anytime soon. Um, but I do think the owners see it as a potential source of a you know, huge revenue increase that networks will be willing to pay more money and you can get maybe a new television package out there. Um, so I think it will return at some point. I just don't think it will be anytime soon. A couple of weeks ago when we were getting close to an agreement, one thing that th- was mentioned a lot that I haven't heard the last few days was this idea of a 16-game Thursday night package. Has that died in the, over the course of the discussions, or is that something we could still look forward to as fans? I don't know that's died. I, I think that's still uh, in their plans, but I, but I okay. haven't heard uh, the, the latest on it. I, I, th- I still think it's a possibility that they open that up um, to open bidding and, and see if a, a new network or an old network wants to get involved. And so I think they're, again, always thinking about ways to maximize revenue, whether that's through showing the games on the NFL network uh, or putting it on another network or, or maybe combining the two. But, uh, but I still think that's, again, that's up for debate. So we also have this new rookie wage scale, and I lo- I, I'm really excited about that because I think it puts the money into the right pockets. My question is, is this going to kind of and the idea of long holdouts by draft picks. Have they kind of created a system now where, look, at this is what you're going to earn, this is where you were drafted, and we can kind of avoid holdouts? Or are players still going to try to, uh, you know, are agents and lawyers going to recommend holding out and waiting for a, a larger contract like they have in the past? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the hope is that it does limit the holdouts. I'm not sure it will completely end them. They don't have the system that they have in the NBA where there is true slotting, so there's still some wiggle room for the players and for the agents, which as long as there's a little bit of wiggle room, that it leaves some room open for negotiation and then holdout. So I, I think it should certainly minimize them. I don't know that it will eliminate them completely, though. So it seems like you spent your entire summer vacation here on the NFL Network, talking about this NFL lockout. Now it's going to be getting about time for you to go back to class, start teaching again. Are you going to be spending your whole winter break talking about the NBA lockout? Is that like kind of next on your, on your, uh, on your agenda here? Uh, it's already begun. It's already so begun. It's not even next. It's, 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 a, it's another line on my, on my agenda. I mean, the NBA lockout's been going on now for a few weeks, and, and yes, but that, that is what I – my, where my attention will shift. I mean, there will be plenty to talk about with the NFL, and there are always legal issues that pop up even without negotiating a new CBA, but certainly the focus will shift to the NBA negotiations, and we'll see if the players choose to take the same path as the NFL players and, and dissolve their union. If so, then we're in for uh, a very uh, long road. E- either way, we're in for a long road with the NBA. This thing could drag out for several months. Are you a Saints fan? I'm a Saints fan, and I'm a Jets fan. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, but I'm an adopted Saints fan. Okay, and so do you go to the games? I do. When they don't conflict with Jets games, I do go to the Saints games. Awesome, because I'm a big Saints fan as well. I'm coming down. I'm going to the Colts game this year. I usually try to go to one, one game a year. So if you're going to be there, maybe we can hook up. We can talk about some legal stuff. You know, Maybe you can sue me or whatever you want to do. <laughs> Uh, but I we probably can, won't see you, but okay. I appreciate the offer. All right, good. Uh, that's that's good. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Again, it's at Sports Law Guys. Is there anything else you want to plug anywhere we can find your work that maybe I left out? You do do some Huff- Huffington Post type stuff as well, right? 
I do. I write a little bit for Huffington Post, a little bit for NFL.com, NFL Network. Obviously, if any prospective law students listening, look up uh, Tulane uh, Law School and Tulane Sports Law Program. Thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for but, sorting all that stuff up for uh, a state school graduate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. All right, the sportscaster's back. I want to thank Gabe Feldman for joining us. That's a great spot, Don. You know, I get pumped when we can get someone who's in demand when they're in demand. It makes me feel powerful or something. <laughs> you know, like, to be able to call upon Gabe Feldman, to have him come on this podcast when in just a few hours he's going to be on NFL Total Access, makes me feel really good. It makes me feel really good about the show. Makes you feel good about the quality content that we're providing for our listeners. It just pumps me up. Yeah, I always get excited when I hear guys like uh, John Wertheim comes to mind, like on Jim Rome's show and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, we we had him and we talked, talked about to the him. same stuff. Yeah. So last week we debuted a new a new segment called Five on Fantasy. Don and I are both big fantasy football players, and fantasy football is going to be a big part of this show as uh, we move forward, get closer to the season, and of course during the season. And we tried out a new segment called Five on Fantasy. Don and I each had two chances to bring up a point, talk about fantasy, similar to three things. And then as the fifth point, we last week debated whether or not we would rather draft two running backs. And I had LaShawn McCoy, and Don had Jamal Charles. Right. So this week we're going to do something similar, but we'll get to that in a minute. In the meantime, Don, what's your first thing on fantasy? I went a little more general this week, uh, kind of just draft strategy. I had specific players last time in mind, but my number one strategy I like to go into with the draft is, I mean, A, you've got to be prepared. You've got to do a little bit of homework beforehand, but then look ahead. And what I mean by that is try to multitask. Be like a chess player. Uh, don't think of just who you're drafting now, but think of who you're going to draft in the next round and who's going to potentially be gone. It helps a lot to keep track of what other teams have drafted, even if it's just a matter of this team has two running backs, this team is. That's the nice thing about those big boards that they have at some drafts. Yeah. I know we've had them in the past. It's nice when you can kind of visually see the colors, you know, who has how many yellows or pinks or whatever color they use. But if you know in a standard league, uh, maybe you're starting two running backs in every team, for whatever reason, you're the last team to have gotten that second running back. You don't necessarily need to get him right away if it means you're going to have to sacrifice a little bit like at the wide receiver position. So you can probably skip a running back that round, get the same running back next round or a later round. And also this helps especially when you're picking at the beginning or the end of a draft, like especially like a standard snake draft. When you're drafting one or two or nine or ten or 11 and 12 in a 12-team league, you're going to be waiting 18 to 21 picks in between picks. So... You've really got to plan ahead. It makes it extra difficult. And don't worry about reaching. There's no such thing as a reach, I feel, when you're drafting one or two, when you've got 18 possible players that are gone. If you like a player, chances are he's not going to be there. Take who you want. Yeah, really, any player that wouldn't be there the next time you pick really can't be classified as a reach. Right. Because that's the only chance you have to draft them. Yep. And it's interesting that you say you lead off with this strategy today because – 
one person that a lot of people read in, for fantasy football knowledge is Matthew Barry, and he put out his annual draft day manifesto, and the number one thing on is have a strategy. Right. You know, and maybe Don's strategy isn't the way you're going to go, but make sure you have one. Uh, so that's a, it's a good point. My number, th- number one thing, and I, I'm going to go a little bit more specific in terms of players and whatnot, but my number one thing today is the release of Willis McGahee. How do you think that impacts Ray Rice? Personally... I think it just increases his value because Willis McGay, he hasn't been much the last few years, but he has been a vulture at the goal line. Yep. And that's one of those things that sometimes can be overrated. People can be a little bit too like, oh, well, this guy, he, he's, he's going to... But it was a real situation there. He was legitimately stealing touchdowns. And I think without him, he's going to get more looks in the goal line situations. Like, I don't think they're going to look to necessarily replace Willis McGahee. I just think they'll give Ray Rice more responsibility. Absolutely. I can't remember if I owned Ray Rice in the league last year. I know my brother did in one. Um, he he is underused, if anything. It seemed like when they used him and when they worked him, like the more he played, the better he got type guy. Yeah, he had 308 carries last year for 1,223 yards, plus he had 63 receptions, which is a nice thing as well. He's a guy who is versatile and comes out of the backfield, but he only had six touchdowns. Right Now, I don't try to predict touchdowns often because they are random, so I generally don't really look at what a player scored, but when you see a number as low as six for you a starting running back, go you got to think you're going to get more touchdowns. Right. Yeah, I like Rice this year for a bounce back year. Like I was saying the other day, or the last podcast, that I don't like to necessarily get guys after monster years, but on the same token, he's a guy that might be a little bit undervalued this year. I mean, I, mean, I could see him slipping out of a first round in a 10-team draft just because people are scared of him, but I, I wouldn't let that happen. My second thing, and this is something that you've harped on in the past. It has nothing to do with strategy. It just has to do with making your league better. Uh, make the draft day an event. Make it the biggest day of your year. Online drafts are great if you have to do it that way, if you've got people out of town. ESPN has a great, real simple-to-use tool. Yep. It's, it's fantastic what technology has given us as far as drafts, especially for absentee players. You're, now, you're no longer handing in a sheet and hoping someone drafts you a good team. But that said, the draft is, should be the most fun day of the year. Eat food. It's probably the one day. Yeah, it's probably the only day of the year that everyone's together from your league. Um, it's just better to be together than online if you don't have to go that route. And then to expand on that, be active throughout the season. I've been in leagues where the draft is a lot of fun. Everyone goes their separate ways. And nobody even, like, responds to trade requests and stuff like that. I'm That's not saying frustrating. You, I'm not saying you have to necessarily go nuts and make make 100 trades or move your team. Some people probably do too much. I might be one of them. But be a guy. Be yeah, there. Be there. Be yeah. involved. Act like you want to be in the league. And I just think it makes it more fun for uh, shit talk. You know what I mean? Just... Just get involved. It makes it all of it makes it more fun. That's one thing that I can't believe how much it's decreased over the last few years because I think it would be the opposite, and maybe it's just the leagues that I'm in. But it seems harder and harder to get things going on a message board than it used to. But yeah, like you said, that is trained with all and, the technology. And with our one league last year, I kind of tried to get things going on Twitter and right. utilize Twitter, and that did help. I think with our we have a league. It's called the Brothers League, and everyone in it has at least one brother in the league. I want to say, like for a league that started off like as like a like a tertiary league, like an extra league, 
that might be my favorite league I'm in now, just because it's fun. Like you do the newsletter, you have polls on it every week. I mean, there's a lot of little things that we did Twitter interviews. Right, there's a lot of stuff you can do as an owner of a league or a manager of a league to make it fun and involve people, and that that's really what it's all about. Why do it if you're not going to be involved? Like I said last week, have fun. Yep. My number two thing. I mentioned last week my strategy uh, would be this year going into the first round, making sure that I got one of the top ten running backs. Let's say you don't, for argument's sake. And your question to me might be, well, who are some guys that you like who are outside? Maybe this question is, who are some sleepers in the running back position? And I got, I got a few names. One name is Sean Green. Yeah. Uh, he's someone that I think is maybe a little under, undervalued and underranked. Now, you're probably not going to get him in the seventh round or anything crazy like right, that. Right. But he's a guy that is a little off the radar. He's a guy that I think is going to get to run the ball a lot more this year than he has in the past. He was the main man in the playoffs last year, really someone that they tr- they trusted in the playoffs. Ladanian Tomlinson is another year older. Right. Uh, his his responsibilities are going to be all the, the less this year. So I like Sean Green. Another guy I like is Jonathan Stewart. I think he's someone who's going to shoot up draft boards as the as the off season goes and when. Uh, D'Angelo Williams is officially no longer a Carolina Panther. I think Jonathan Stewart is a guy that you could really score a lot of points with and not have to take him in the first round. Now, if he's a number one in that team and there's, they don't pick up like a, a vet or like if D'Angelo Williams doesn't stick around. Um, he's probably in the second group of ten. Okay, so I mean, you're going to have to pick him in the yeah, if, if late you, second. If you split it up and if you split the running backs into groups of ten, and we had that first top 10 list that we mentioned last year or last week. Arian Foster, Jamal Charles, Chris Johnson, Adrian Peterson, Ray Rice, Darren McFadden, Maurice Jones Drew, LaShawn McCoy, Matt Forte, and then, or, you know, Mendenhall, Forte Turner, like those three guys, whoever you want to put in those last two spots. Then I think the next 10 is where you would find Sean Green and where you would find Jonathan Stewart. Now, the ranking I'm looking at right now on football. FantasyFootballToday.com, they would have him in the third grouping of 10. But that's as of right now, and that's why I say he's going to be someone that will rise right. up. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as uh, he's never really carried the weight on his own, but he's only missed two games in three seasons. Granted, he's only started 10 games in three seasons with uh, D'Angelo Williams there, but starts are kind of meaningless in football. He's he's carried the bulk once in a while there. I have, I have one more name I want to ask you about, Don, and get an opinion on, and it's Ben Jarvis Green-Ellis. Last season, he had just short of 1,000 yards. It's amazing. Just short. And they had a, somewhat of a crowded backfield there last year. But I feel like it's getting less crowded. And that Ben Jarvis Greenhouse has kind of emerged as maybe the guy who's going to be considered a starter there and a guy who's going to get a bulk of their carries. He, only, he had 230 carries last year. If that moves up to 293, which is what Arian Foster had, that seems to me like a running back who's going to have 1,200 yards or so. Where do they have him in terms of where does that list have him? This list has him right behind Fred Jackson and right ahead of Felix Jones. Wow, that's tough. I I know the Bills are going to want to do everything they can to get C.J. Spiller more involved this year, but I still probably like Fred Jackson a little bit better. It's New England is a tough team fantasy-wise. Other than Tom Brady, there's no sure things there. Like, Randy Moss would have been an early, early pick last year, and then he fell apart. I mean, I know he was he's a mental case, but uh, I don't know. I could see 
going into the season thinking he's going to be a stud. I could see just as easily them. If he was your number three, would you be happy? Yeah. Yeah, yes. I think I'd take him as a three. Would you take him as a two? If your number I, one was, I, say, a stud. If your number if one number was a, a foster. stud, and I'm hoping I have probably two really good receivers then if I'm going for him as my number two. I'd just be a little bit nervous because Belichick doesn't stick to conventional wisdom at all. You never – Danny Woodhead could get involved right. more. What about Ryan Grant? Ryan Grant's an interesting guy. He's coming off an injury. He had 180 carries last year for 756 yards, yeah, five TDs. Start, yeah. Yep, 25 receptions. He was he was looking like a top five to ten running back last year. Went down with the injury, and nobody really took that job. I mean, I know that so starts. Yep, yeah, he had a couple of good games, but he also had a couple of games where he was had to sit the bench because he didn't know how to pick up a blitz. Right. They're going to want to give Ryan Grant this job back if he's healthy. So that's someone to keep an eye on as training camp gets going here. He's a guy you're going to want to know how he is health-wise. Grant's an interesting guy because he's never really a sexy pick. He's never a guy you pick and you're like, yes, I can't believe he dropped to me. But he's a guy that in before last year, he uh, had 956, 1203, 1253. Actually, what am I looking at? Because you said he had like 700 yards last year. Yeah, last year he had 756 yards rushing. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure what... Uh, what I'm looking at here, <laughs> I'll have to check a different stat website. But yeah, he's just—he's the type of guy that will always get you an incredibly solid to good season of around twelve, thirteen hundred yards and a few touchdowns. And but he's never—he's the type of guy that's going to get you probably ten, eleven points a game. But he's not going to have those uh, Priest Holmes, Ladainian Tomlinson thirty-point games. Like, I, but he's very steady. So I don't know. I. He's a tough pick as far as I'm not even sure I'd want him over Green Ellis, but that again just be could 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 be because I'm undervaluing him because he's such an unsexy pick. And uh Green Ellis gets to play the Bills twice a year, which which is always nice for running backs. But yeah, Ryan Ryan Grant is oh I would say he's almost always undervalued. Absolutely. So that brings us to our fifth thing, which neither of us really we kind of talked this through together. And what we want to debate a little bit today is Matthew Berry, who I mentioned earlier, big fantasy guy out there in the world of media, and he is in love with Michael Vick. He, he wants to French kiss Michael Vick <laughs> and has him as his number one. I, if I were to make a list and publish it on ESPN.com, would have... Adrian Peterson? Mm, or as far as your quarterbacks? You as mean? far as my quarterbacks. Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, I would have Aaron Rodgers number one. So my question to you, Don, who would you have number one? I, Vic or Rodgers? Pros and cons of each. The one thing I like to try to do in the first round is not – you don't want a first-round pick that is going to scare you all year long. You don't want a first-round pick that is not going to be reliable. I think Aaron Rodgers is what he is. I think he's going to be the next Peyton Manning. I think he's going to throw for tons of yards, tons of touchdowns every year. He's not too bad. His legs aren't too bad either. I mean, I know he's no Michael Vick, but he can. he's going to run you for a few touchdowns and a few yards every game. Michael Vick, if he plays a full season, probably will finish the season with the most points in the league just based on his legs. I mean, right. I don't know what his worst season is, but I imagine it's something like seven, 800 yards rushing. He had almost 1,000 last year, and that's to go with 3,000 yards passing, and he did it all in only like 11 games, 12 games, something around those lines. 
Michael Vick to me just has too many question marks. I don't know if he can. It seems like teams figure him out. Um, he's an injury risk every time he runs. He's uh, Deshaun Jackson now looks like he may hold out. So there, there's a lot of question marks with my first round guy. If if it's close enough where I'm debating it, I'm going to go with the guy with less question marks, and I think that's probably Aaron Rodgers. You know what? I must have been looking at a projection, but Ryan Grant got hurt week one last year. Okay. And he only rushed for 45 yards on the season. Okay. Yeah. So, so that must have been a projection of where this the yeah I thought he I thought he got hurt early yeah he did get hurt early so that was my mistake I'm sorry about that but as far as the Rodgers versus Vic debate I'm going to say this the thing about Michael Vick is you say some teams will figure him out and that's true but some teams still don't have the linebacker speed that can run that can him. contain him right because that's the key to Michael Vick you want to keep him behind the line of scrimmage you want to keep him contained you want to keep him in the pocket so to speak. And sometimes if you don't have edge speed, even though you have a good scheme or a good plan, Michael Vick can still get on the outside, get on the edges, and make plays. But in that same breath, Aaron Rodgers can do the same. He's not going to rush for 1,000 yards, but he's not a statue. He isn't Dan Marino back there. And on top of that, he's going to throw for 4,000 yards. And he's going to score touchdowns, throw a lot of touchdowns. The one thing he needs to work on, and maybe it's a negative for Vick too, is interceptions. Um, but I guess when you have as many as attempts as Aaron Rodgers does, you're going to throw a couple picks. Aaron Rodgers, the last three seasons, which is really his only three seasons, the full seasons, has thrown for no less than 28 touchdowns. So if you're guaranteed almost more than a touchdown and a half a game from your quarterback versus any question marks you would have with Vic, and Rodgers has missed one game in his career. So I know he had a concussion last year, but that's the only time he's ever not played a game. Rodgers is just a safer guy. He's safer. And that's with my – I definitely would not pick first overall, like where Matthew Barry has him. But I'm just – I'm never the quarterback early type of guy. Once in a while, if someone falls to me late in the second and I feel like I have to take him, then I will. But I'm almost never the guy to take a quarterback early. But I think for me it would be Rodgers because of the safety of the pick. All right, from here, our next interview is with John P. Lopez – and although John isn't necessarily a fantasy football guy, a lot of the stuff that we talk about, which is the most, the bulk of the inju- the bulk of the interview, focuses on NFL free agents, teams, where guys are going to go, which is going to be important for fantasy football. So if you're big on fantasy football, definitely check out the next interview with John P. Lopez. And after that, we'll be back. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with John P. Lopez, and then we'll be back. Our next guest is from San Antonio, Texas, and is a graduate of Texas A&M University. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, where he hosts the Vandermeer and Lopez Show on Sports Radio 610. He's also a regular columnist for SportsIllustrated.com and TexAggs.com. In 1997, he co-authored the book Landing on My Feet, A Diary of Dreams with 1996 Olympic gold medalist Kerry Strug. He has covered Super Bowls, NCAA Final Fours, NBA Finals, World Series, seven Olympic Games, and four World Cups. His opinion and commentary has been valued by numerous radio and television shows, including appearances on The Tonight Show, 
Sports Center, Outside the Lines, and now the Sportscasters. A warm sportscasters welcome to the multi-talented John P. Lopez. How are you doing today, John? Hey, man, you got to let that song play all the way through, don't you? That's a nice little surprise. Yeah, we always bring our guests into their alma mater fight songs, and they always love it. So uh, we keep yeah. doing it. Get some, yeah, get some fired up. Yeah, you know, it's the and Acuman, they call it the Warham. Right, yeah, exactly, the Warham. I saw that. Yeah, so... I'm glad to get you pumped up. We're going to talk a little bit NFL free agency here as the next few days are just going to be something we've never seen before, just madness and, and craze and any other words you can use to describe it. And there's a bunch of places we can start. Why don't we do this? How hard do you think it's going to be for teams to sign their own free agents due to the fact that the league came back without an exclusive window. Are a bunch of teams going to lose guys that they normally would have signed with an exclusive window? Uh, yes. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. I think, uh, you know, I wrote something about two weeks ago, a little over two weeks ago, and I talked to a couple of sources, a couple of friends of mine in, in, the, in the league, and they originally had a plan. They called it a 12-day plan. And what it was going to be was for four days after the settlement of, uh, of the lockout, they were going to have teams have exclusive negotiation window with their own guys, and then four days of unrestricted free agents, and then the last four free agents, and then the last four days were going to be for the rookies and undrafted free agents. Well, that all got thrown out the window. Then you know everything got delayed a few days, and the weekend came, and and there was another there was another reason uh, to shorten the window. So I think they're kind of working in reverse, saying, "All right, let's get all the expand the rosters." All the undrafted uh, free agents, rookies, and drafted rookies into camp so they can start getting some books and studying in, and uh, then we'll we'll just kind of open the doors to uh, to our uh, to our own free agents. Well, there's a real flaw in their plan that not a lot of people have talked about. They said you can cut people starting now, basically today. Right. All right. Well, if you if you tell people you can cut them now, but they can't really sign their own guys until later or they're going to be negotiating as you cut them, you're kind of putting a gun to two teams' heads. They either cut them or you sign them. Well, we all know, as you said, it's kind of a frenzied thing right now. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a feeding frenzy. It literally is. So teams, and we saw it with Baltimore already today, they're saying, well, okay, if, we, if that's the choice, let's cut them because there's no guarantee that these guys are going to stay with us and we know what we're paying them. Maybe we can get more value, and that's going to be the operative word uh, throughout the NFL. Uh, here in the next uh, 12, or 12 or 15 days or so. So I think they kind of, they, they, their intentions were good, but they're, they're really making teams make a decision now on their own guys. And plus, let's not forget, each individual guy thinks that they can make more money, uh, you know, elsewhere as well. You might not know the answer to this question any more than I would, but I'm going to throw it out. Based on the new agreement and the way the rookie scale shaped out and the and the way they put the rules for the rookies in place are we going to be able to avoid long holdouts are is is the rookie contracts now basically look at this is where you're drafted this is what you get signed on the dotted line or are we still in danger of seeing the long holdouts i think you're in danger of seeing a long holdout not not the type of holdout that we've, we've seen in the past um i also think you're going to see a lot of later round picks signed real early. Uh, I'm talking later, not even real late, like third rounders. They'll, they'll know the ballpark in which they're going to sign. 
I think what this does, though, people, you know, get back to the lockout. People say, well, who won? You know, they are spying relevant on who won. And I think for the most part, people are saying, kind of washed. The owners won some points. Uh, the players won some points. If you had to pick a side, I would pick owners only on this point, only on the rookie wage scale. And, and the reason is, it's a five-year deal, as, as you know, so the option's on the fifth year, and that helps the player because it'll be an average of the top ten salaries at his position. But you still have your guy there for four years. So if he's not working out, if he's not panning out, uh, you're not overpaying for someone like a Ryan Leaf. And I know that's the exaggeration, but, but nevertheless, you're not overpaying someone. And if the guy does work out, if he is, you know, some, some really, really uh, breakthrough rookie, well, then in the second or third year, you're going to reward him anyway. I mean, you're not going to, you know, keep him to that contract. So I think the owners get that for a little bit. Real quick, back on your on your other point, the only holdouts that are going to really happen are going to be your number one or number two picks, but, it, but still, it's not going to be because of the bonus money. The bonus money is going to be uh, much smaller than before. Do you think with this four-year window with a, an option for a fifth that teams are going to rush their players onto the field as opposed to having some guys sit back and watch, like especially with top-end quarterbacks. Does Carolina have more pressure to get Cam Newton on the field this year instead of wasting one of those guaranteed four years with him sitting on the bench watching a Jimmy Clausen? Um, I actually think the exact opposite. I think you can be a little bit more patient. Now, you want to find out within four years. But rather than, if you're paying him, let's say, Matt Stafford money, that's a lot of pressure to play him now. But if you're not paying him Matt Stafford money, and, and, and he's not going to be paying him that, well, then you can say, look, you're, you know, no pressure. You're getting paid. Let's bring in whomever, you know, whomever they bring in. And then next year, you'll have a whole year on your belt. Let's see what you got. And then the year after that, maybe he's playing more. I actually think it's the exact opposite. I think you can afford to be a little more patient with the fact that, that you're not overpaying these guys. One guy I wouldn't want to be today is Mickey Loomis, the G- general manager of the Saints. They have... I believe the number is 45, maybe it's 42 free agents, their own players. And with free agencies going to be difficult to sign your own players this year, uh, what kind of work do you see the Saints doing in the next couple of days? you think Reggie Bush is gone? Uh, are they going to be able to sign Roman Harper, who's probably the second biggest name on that list? What do you know about the Saints, and do you think that uh, they're not going to be able to sign any other free agents because they're going to be so busy just trying to work on their own players? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that's a big topic in the league because, uh, obviously, it's become a staple program over there, you know, whatever you want to call it, a landmark-type organization with Drew Brees and the Super Bowl. I, I don't think they're going to be able to keep all those guys, well, obviously not all of them, but I think a, a Roman Harper, like you just mentioned, that's a perfect example of what I was just talking about, where you say, okay, we've got to sign our guy. All right, well, yeah, okay, you want to sign your guy. Well, guess who also has an opinion on this? Roman Harper. He's, you know, he's, got a, he's got some thoughts on this, and he could maybe sort of, you know, uh, wait it out and see what he gets elsewhere. So you're right. I mean, I think uh, the Saints are in a bad spot, and then conversely you've got some teams that are in great spots, namely uh, Tampa Bay and Kansas City. Those are the teams with two best records from last year that have just ungodly amounts of money to spend. So uh, it works both ways. A couple of, uh, let's go over a couple of guys. Um, 
The Bills. The Bills came out today and said that they are going to try to focus on signing Paul Pozlesny and Dante Wittner. Now, normally, you would go into free agency and think the Bills have no chance to sign Dante Wittner and Paul Pozlesny just because uh, they're going to be outbid. Now, guys who are on the second tier like that, my question is, do you think that these kind of guys might be easier to keep as the bigger teams that are going to spend more money than a Bills or a Bengals will be concentrating on the Santonio Holmes and the top-end free agents, the, the Namdi Ashima type of guys. Right. You know, every in every organization right now, because it's a short window, they have a priority list. And I'm sure it's printed up or put on some whiteboard. Number one, what do we do? Who's going to get this guy, whether it's Cromartie or Altamont or whomever you're talking about? Number two, who's going to get this guy? Well, where does publicity stand in that in that fair? Well, I think you're right, except it only takes one team to fall in love with him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it only takes one team to say, I like that guy. I think he'll, he'll fit in really good. I'll give you another example. Barrett uh, Rude down at Tampa didn't have a great year last year. He's got, he's got New England Patriots written all over him. You know, consistent tackler, big guy, maybe a change of scenery. Uh, you know, could fit into that system. Uh, you know, and all of a sudden drive like so many players like him have in the past. So let's say the Patriots, they're known not to overpay, but let's say they fall in love with him enough to give him an offer. Well, he's, you know, right now, he's kind of a mid-level type guy, or second tier, I shouldn't say mid-level, but a very good player. But then all of a sudden, you got yourself, got yourself a bidding war. Now, that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, the New York Jets are another team that we expect to kind of hear a lot from. Rex Ryan, not a quiet guy. Uh, Mr. T is a well-respected GM in the National Football League. He's had six months to prepare for this. And all their wide receivers basically are gone. Uh, that's going to be a, a priority for them. Santonio San Holmes, Braylon Edwards. Which one do you think they're more likely to sign? And what else do you think the Jets will want to do in the next couple of days here? Yeah, I think their priority is receiver. Um, you've got to be able to take uh, to take Mark Sanchez to the next level. Uh, I really like that guy with, with the thing that's sticking in his heart, whatever it is. It makes, I think he's one of those type competitors. Uh, but, but at some point, you've got to kind of look on the offensive side and get this. So, Braylon Edwards, yeah, I could see that. I, I could see another receiver. I could see them getting a couple of receivers with the Jets. And, uh, and I think they should. Uh, you know, here, here's a team that, uh, you know, they've been mentioned, mentioned with Optimus. I don't see that if they're going to do, if they're going to help their offense, help Sanchez, um, you know, I think that, that's going to be where Optimus falls to the cracks of the Jets. I think it's absolutely prioritized receiver with him and offensive line as well. Do you think the Lions have any of a shot with, uh, with Namdi Asamoah? Or where do you think he will ultimately end up? Because the Lions seem like they've made such a big leap this uh, this off season with a great draft. Their defensive line is good. They got plenty of weapons on offense. But it seems like the back half of that defense could really use a player. Do you think they make a run at Namdi? I, I think they they could. I absolutely do. I don't think they will because I'm a big fan, and uh, and you remember this from the New York Giants uh, Super Bowl run, the so-called super unit. You know, they had that defensive line that was just right. so good. It made everybody else. Well, what if I were to take an alliance we're going to go after Charles Johnson at the end or something like that? 
Then you've got Sue in the middle. You've got him bringing pressure. You've got yourself a super unit uh, on the defensive side that makes that secondary a lot better. And that might be, this is me speculating, just kind of on what I've you know, seen here, that might be the route they go. And all of a sudden, the Lions, I mean, I can't believe that I'm saying it, but the Lions are a playoff contender. Yeah, I, everyone loves what they've done. It seems like they're building their team up very well, very smart, ever since Matt Millen left the room. It's the Sportscasters here with uh, John P. Lopez out in Texas. We're just kind of jumping around here talking about NFL free agency, which is going to be crazy in the next few days. I'm thinking about the St. Louis Rams, and they were one game away from making the playoffs despite not the best record, obviously. just kind of worked out that way with their division. It seems like the one thing they need the most is a weapon for Sam Bradford, and it seems like one thing you can definitely find in this free agency is, is good receivers. Is Sidney Rice or Santonio Holmes or any of the big-name receivers that we've talked about, do any of them make sense for the Rams? Will the Rams make a push for a weapon yeah. for, for yeah. Bradford? Very similar. Very similar to what we're talking about uh, with Sanchez as well. Uh, I, I do. I think uh, look, you know, they're, they're trying to fortify their offense. You see the undrafted signings, uh, rookie signings they had today heavy on the offense, including a couple of receivers that I'm sure they're uh, they're, they're high on. Uh, but they need that veteran go-to guy. It's, it's almost a, a direct parallel with us. Almost a direct parallel with the things that, that the Jets need. Uh, I like the Rams. Uh, I like Bradford. I mean, that's stating the obvious. Everybody does. Uh, but they're a little bit short uh, on the... Uh, you know, I also think they need, they need like an H-back type, a little dump-off receiver. Uh, that they can that they can pick up. I mean, that's going to be a definite priority for them. We haven't talked much about D'Angelo Williams and the Carolina Panthers. Is D'Angelo Williams one of those guys that, obviously, you mentioned priorities? He's probably priority number one for Carolina. Jonathan Stewart said, I think, on Twitter that they want to keep that combination together. Do you think uh-huh. D'Angelo Williams stays there, or do you think he's on the move? I think he's absolutely on the move. I think it goes back what we were talking about at the very beginning here. The player has a, a say in this as well, and there's going to be uh, there's going to be so many teams, and one in particular uh, that I think is going to sign him, that's the Denver Broncos. I mean, he's got Denver Broncos written all over him, and and I think uh, that's going to be exactly what we were just talking about. It only takes one team to fall in love with him, and then you got to pay more. And I think his eyes are going to be wide. The Panthers or an interesting team because here you are with, with Cam Newton and and that's about it. They're not gonna win. They're not gonna be good. If you talk about an interesting thing that could happen, they could get the number one pick overall next year. Huh. And are you gonna pass on Andrew Luck? Are you kidding me? The best quarterback that's come through since Peyton Manning, probably. I mean that's my opinion, but I mean everybody I've talked to uh, would, would verify that. So they're an interesting uh, case study, and uh, I think uh, D'Angelo Williams and his, his representation understand that. He's got Denver Bronco written all over him. That would be really interesting if the Panthers drafted Clawson in 09, Newton in 10, and Luck in 11. That would be really, really interesting. Seriously, let me ask you, would you possibly be able to pass on Andrew Luck? Wow, that would be difficult, especially if he, if he I mean... Yeah, he's got everything. He's so big and strong. And and Cam Newton, they're going to have a year to look at him, and I think they might be a little disappointed. I'm not really a big Cam Newton guy. And if they're, yeah, not, if they're not sure at all about Cam Newton, it seems like they'd have to go with Luck. Yeah, 
I, I totally agree. I mean, they can always uh, say, you know, use that number one pick because there is going to be such a, a demand for an Andrew Luck to get a bunch of players, you know, a bunch of picks and a bunch of players. But man, this guy, this guy is the real deal in every sense of the word. It's so hype. Yeah, he reminds me a lot of Jim Kelly. Growing up in Buffalo and watching Jim Kelly play, I see a lot of that in Andrew Luck with the size. It kind of almost looks like a linebacker and the strength. That I don't know if that's a fair comparison or not. But uh, so we, we call Jim Kelly former Houston Gambler, Jim Kelly. Former Houston Gambler, that's right. You know, it's a funny thing about Jim Kelly. He didn't want to come to Buffalo at all, and now we can't get rid of him. You know, yeah. now, now he won't <laughs> leave. He's, he's standing on the sidelines during games, and he's a – Big, huge part of Western New York. Maybe even talked about wanting to put uh, a, a team together to buy the Bills potentially. So it's funny. And they didn't want to come here in 1985. Now he never wants to leave. Uh, a couple more guys. We haven't talked about quarterbacks at all. It's a, it's a relatively thin quarterback class in terms of free agents. But there are a couple of veterans out there, namely Matt Hasselback, who's going to have a lot of suitors. One of them being his own team, Seattle Seahawks. Will the Seahawks keep Hasselback? Will Hasselback go elsewhere? And uh, if Hasselbeck does leave Seattle, are they ready to uh, give the job to uh, Charlie? Yeah, I think the Charlie Whitehurst there might be upon us. Um, Hasselbeck is not, I don't think anybody would call him elite. Now, he, he's above average. He's a very good quarterback. Um, so, but the problem is, for, for the Seahawks, that is, the problem is he's the best out there. I mean, in terms of free agent quarterbacks, Matt Hasselbeck's the best one out there, I, I think. So, uh, you know, let's talk about economics. I mean, he's going to be get, he's going to be getting paid, and and I think uh, it's going to be the Charlie Whitehurst era out there. I mean, what are the quarterbacks out there? I mean, you talk about the Panthers. Freaking Matt Moore is going to get a good contract, <laughs> and, and he was just a temporary player, but because it's such a weak year in terms of front line free agent quarterbacks, that's one of the reasons we haven't talked about it. If you ask me, this is a heavy, heavy, heavy year on cornerbacks and defensive tackles, and those are uh, more so defensive tackles, but those are need-type uh, signings. You know, the Houston Texans right here where I live, I mean, they're trying to bust everything, every contract they can in order to gather enough money to get off them on, or anybody of that ilk, you know, and Ike Taylor or, or Jonathan Joseph or whoever it is. It's a deep year, though, uh, for cornerbacks. I personally like Josh Wilson a lot uh, out of Baltimore, and he's a good young player that's and get better every year. Uh, it's deep at cornerback, deep at defensive tackle, but who really needs that? You don't find those guys unless unless you really need it. Quarterback, on the other hand, is always going to be in demand for a quarterback, and that's why I think Hasselbeck is going to be gone. Why don't you throw out a couple of names at defensive tackle? Uh, these are some of the guys that do fight under the radar to fans. They don't get drafted in fantasy football drafts. Who are a couple of defensive tackles, and where do you think they could be headed? Uh, well, it's hard to say with, in terms of where they're headed, but there, there are defensive tackles for them to go up to 3-4 or the 4-3, uh, you know, who you are. I'm just saying there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of depth at that position. I mean, I couldn't even think of one going any, you know, anywhere in particular. Um, all I know is as I'm looking at my, my free agent list and calling around, everybody else talks about the depth of defensive tackle. You know, I've got some stuff on SI.com that, that I put together on all these positions. Uh, I think, you know, if you, it's almost like you can always have, there's a lot of big bodies, and, but there's not a lot of, you know, big bodies that can play. Amalia Koye is one. You know, he, he's a big guy, but he's, he's really just sort of spinning his wheel. What I'm saying is you got to find the right pitch. 
for a particular tackle, especially with the defensive coordinators. Yeah, you mentioned how there's a lot of big guys, but not many big guys that can play. Is that why a defensive tackle, when there's a good one, they tend to go so high in the draft because it's really hard to find the combination of really big guy and really good player? Right, and that's why I'm, I'm still a little bit reluctant that Chris Jenkins is, is going to be really retired. He must really be hurt uh, because given the fact that he's a veteran, he would have a job anywhere in the league if he wanted because you know of the lockout, and, uh, and he's a playmaker. You know, I'm surprised that he, he's really retired. Maybe that'll change, but uh, yeah, you're right. One name that's thrown out all the time as far as trades is Kevin Cobb. If you were Andy Reid, would you think about keeping Kevin Cobb? I really wouldn't. Um, I would love to, and there's nothing that says uh, that they can't. I mean, they, they can hold him hostage, uh, basically. But I think there's a, a good enough... Uh, well, first of all, he's talking about Texas A&M. Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles today signed an undrafted uh, a free agent who's very quarterback, who's very uh, dear, near and dear to me. I, I Grew up with my son, Gerard Johnson, uh, from A&M. He's uh, been part of my family. He's fine with the Eagles. So they've got Cap, so they've got, of course, Michael Vick. I think they're going to find that mid-level type, uh, mid-level type uh, quarterback and then try to develop one of those two rookies uh, behind Vick. They still have to pay Vick now, and, that, and that's another thing that's going to come into play with with uh, with their salary cap. That's why I think you can maybe you can get rid of Cobb you can get a, you know, whomever comes in, a quarterback, I'm guessing, and then all of a sudden, then all of a sudden, uh, you, you know, you don't have to spend money on a quarterback. You, you save money on your quarterback, and you're still in the play for, for other free agents. I'm just worried. You know, I get worried about, about Vic in the long term because he's out of the pocket so much, and he's always moving around, and they're so close to being a Super Bowl team. I don't know. If yeah. I was Andy, I might think about it. But you make some good points there. Uh, a couple more big players that we haven't talked about. We kind of skipped running backs real quick. We kind of talked about D'Angelo Williams and moved on. But there's some other good names. I'm out Bradshaw, Cedric Benson, jump out. Um, I know sometimes running back gets looked at as a position that's kind of a dime a dozen. And maybe the Saints are a good example of that, having had Chris Ivory lead, lead the team in rushing last year, which is kind of strange. Uh, but I'm a Bradshaw and Cedric Benson, and then maybe a couple of the guys who would fit with your with your Rams thing, uh, Darren Sproles or um, Steve Slayton might be one of those good H-back type players that you mentioned for the Rams. Yeah, I, I mentioned Steve Slayton in, uh, in the SI case that you were talking about. He is tailor-made uh, for a Rams type of offense. I'll tell you who else might be if you want to take a flyer and you've got a little money to spend. Uh, Reggie Bush. I mean, it's a, it's a roll of the dice with that knee that he's got, those knees that he has. But uh, you talk about an explosive outlet for Sam Bradford. Uh, that's one. Amat Bradshaw is possibly my favorite running back uh, on the market right now. Giants going to do whatever they can to keep him. But he's going to come at a price, man. And and I think if you <laughs> if you want to if you want to find a big time back. That that, uh, that can help a team get to a Super Bowl again and win it. I'm talking to Mark Bradshaw in a New Orleans Saints uniform. That would be something special with Brees swinging it around and Bradshaw pounded between the tackles. I want to throw a couple of veterans out at you and tell me if you think that they end up getting signed. What about Plaxico Burris and Tiki Barber? Are they going to be a, a part of this league? I think yes and yes. I really do. Uh, I think both of them. 
are going to, to find jobs because of what we just talked about. Uh, it's, the, it's the weird year. Uh, I think, I hate to say it because I really thought this money meant I think Brett Farms might be a place somewhere. Uh, you know, I really do. Uh, just because of that, and uh, Tiki Barber is is going. To, well, one thing that that is a factor is he needs money. I mean, <laughs> right. he needs the money. We all know what happened, you know, with his uh, family life. So he needs the money, so he's motivated. So there's one factor there. And then secondly, you know, there's opportunity. I mean, teams are going to want that experience. Two more vets: Randy Moss, Terrell Owens. Owens were a little. Unsure of injury-wise, he might be a guy that you sign, you put on PUP, and hope can help you later. Uh, what do you think about those two names? I don't think either one of those names can help uh, can help us all that much right now. I really don't. Uh, they're we saw what Randy Moss did last year. Well, for that matter, Terrell Owens. I think they're sort of last type effort, last this type effort that uh, you can bring in. They certainly have the playmaking ability, but they have the athletic The sportscasters are here with John P. Lopez. Again, he's uh, out in Texas at Sports Radio 610 in Houston. You can also find him on Twitter. He is at Lopez on Sports. Just a couple more here. We're going to let you go. Let's say you're really into Namni Ashamwa and you don't get him. Who's maybe the second best guy that you can go after? Is it Cromarty or is it uh, Carlos Rogers from Washington or maybe Jonathan Joseph? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm trying to think. I'm guessing Jonathan Joseph, but I think he's going to stay where he is. Uh, beyond that, I would have to say, yeah, I guess Cromartie, man. I'm, 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 I'm hedging to the, like I said, this is a really deep year for quarterbacks. I mean, who, is, who else is going to be available out there? I mean, I, I mentioned... Brent Grimes? Yeah, I mentioned Josh Wilson. What about Chris Carr out of, out of the Carolina? I mean, there are some players at quarterback that are going to be available. I think the, the difference maker, of course, is, is definitely awesome uh, 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 law. And whoever gets them is going to be real happy, but they're going to be paying a big price. What are some, uh, what are the, maybe, I don't even want to put a number on it, but what are you most excited about right now? Like, what storylines are you most excited to see play out as the w- football's back gets going here the, this week? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a few that are just really going to kind of determine. Uh, you know, how the season goes for a lot of teams. Kevin Cox, you mentioned him. He's going to, a lot of dominoes going to fall, depending on what they do with Kevin Cox. Possible, we've talked about him. A lot of, you know, a team like the Texans, a team like the Ravens, uh, and the Redskins are apparently in the mix on off They all are going to elevate their game overnight with him. Uh, there, there's no question about that. I think Cam Newton is, is a story. Cam Tebow, how's he going to respond? I don't think the guy is that good as an NFL player. He's a tremendous individual. I don't think he's an NFL player. I think I think Cam Newton is kind of falling in the same category, but they're so gifted athletically and as leaders. Those guys are stories. Hey, what about Drew Brees? They got humiliated last year at Seattle by a team that you know a lot of people didn't think deserved to be in the, in the postseason. And then there's the big story. Uh, to me, one of the biggest stories, the Green Bay Packers are going to be better just by getting healthy players back, getting players healthy again. People forget how many players they have. I mean, Jermichael Finley, are you kidding me? That guy is a full, all pro type tight end. He didn't even play last year. Then all the guys able to defense the defense is like, 
Bill, the pressure's off now. And how good are they going to be? Uh, a lot of really good stories all across the NFL. And man, that's why we watch every week. And, and there's some stories out there that we haven't even seen yet. You know, Jason Garrett, there's another one with the Cowboys. Is he, you know, how's that going to be? Was that just Jerry Jones, uh, uh, you know, disciple that he was going to pigeonhole into that job? What about right here where I live? Wade Phillips. Houston, Texas had one of the best offenses on the planet. Can Wade Phillips make them just an average defense? If they're just an average defense and they get off tomorrow, then they can become a great defense and maybe even make a, a, a push. New York Jets. Rex Ryan's going to put it all out there uh, on the Jets. What's going to happen with Coughlin and the Giants? I mean, on and on and on it goes. It's some really compelling stories all across the league. All right, the sportscaster is John P. Lopez. Again, you can find him out in Texas, 610 AM Sports Radio. I'm sure you can stream that online. Is that correct? Can, can we listen oh, to your absolutely. show? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Radio.com. Okay, and uh, also you can find him on Twitter. He is at Lopez on Sports. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, well, uh, you mentioned the first book I did, and, and I want to plug it this year. I just finished a book uh, with former uh, Houston Oiler, Oakland Raider, Philadelphia Eagle, and Los Angeles Ram, uh, Dan Pastorini. People have been asking him uh, to do a book for a couple of decades. He finally uh, got it. He wanted to do it. Uh, he just got an amazing story. He was a drag racer after his NFL career. He dated Floyd Models and Farrah Fawcett. And the book's probably going to be coming out in November. It's a really good story. I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying his story was fantastic, and I was really glad to, to work with him on that. Well, you know, the sportscasters, we have a book club. We read a different book every month, and we'll definitely keep that one on our radar. It sounds really, really interesting, and maybe you can come back after we've had a chance to read it, and we can talk to you a little bit about the book. Sure, I'll get, uh, I'll get that, though, to come on with you. All right. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Look forward to uh, keeping in touch and uh, talking uh, as the season goes on. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Lopez. We have to thank John P. Lopez for coming on the show today. That was great. I want to thank him for that. And we're going to get to Kerry J. Byrne in a second. Don, a lot, of, a lot has been talked about in the last few weeks. We were all nervous that we were going to miss out on something, right? Like, we were all worried, well, if the lockout comes, we're not going to be able to play fantasy football. Right. All these games are going to be canceled. The red zone channel. There's going to be no red. It's just <laughs> not going to be very fun, right? Right. Well, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, well, what games would we have really missed out on? What, what matchups were already there on the schedule in place hmm. that we would lose? What classic matchups? So I want to go over a couple games with you. I just want to get your general opinion on, I don't know if I want to say how excited you are that that game isn't lost, but maybe just, let's just start from the beginning. The first game that would have been canceled is going to be a great one. Thursday night, September 8th, we're going to be all ready, fantasy drafts are going to be over, you're going to have your teams, and right there, it's Lambeau Field, the last two Super Bowl champions... Saints and the Packers, 8.30 at night, shut the wife up, <laughs> put the kids to bed. It's going to be a great night. So, thank God we didn't lose that, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I love the first game of the season for all the reasons you said. 
you're kind of football starved by that point because football for how it feels like it goes on all year really has like a very has a very very short season relative to other sports and even if it wasn't such a good game it would be exciting and it happened i mean it's a great game so it's even especially from a fantasy perspective there's just guys all over the place that'll be starting that one will be loaded up and then you get to sunday september 11th it's a 10 year anniversary some of us maybe will have a pearl jam concert to look forward to that night that's right and Pittsburgh plays Baltimore at 1 o'clock. Indianapolis plays Houston at 1 o'clock. Where is that division going to be? Is, is Houston ready to, the, right, every to year claim it look, that? It looks like Houston's going to make a jump, and then they don't. So is this the year? Right. At, at 4 o'clock, we have a couple of really nice matches. We have New York Giants and the Washington Redskins. Are either of those teams going to be a factor in the, in the AFC East? Also, we have the Minnesota Vikings and the San Diego Chargers. Are the Chargers going to improve... From what was statistically, and you're going to hear a little bit of my conversation with Kerry J. Byrne in a second, statistically the Chargers were fantastic last year, but they, they didn't win any games. Yeah, weren't they something like first? They were first in all offense, kinds of categories. In first in offense on and boss, first on defense. That's amazing. You know, so we have Minnesota and San Diego. Then we get tonight. We have Dallas and the Jets in New York City yep. on 9-11. What a great game. And then two games on Monday night. And those two games are New England at Miami and Oakland at Denver. Second Monday night game never seems that appealing. It always ends up going down to the last couple of plays. <laughs> you know, uh, last year it was the Chiefs and the Chiefs and the Chargers, I believe. Might be, yeah. And uh, the Chiefs ended up winning this great game. So we wouldn't have had that without the end to this lockout, and that's just week one. So I wanted to kind of mention and maybe put into perspective a little bit. You know, we've we've been talking all this time about what we would have lost. And I wanted to kind of put into words exactly what it was. And what it is that we would have lost is being able to watch New Orleans and play Green Bay, getting able to watch Pittsburgh play Baltimore and Indianapolis play Houston. And people in Buffalo, their team starts off in Kansas City at Arrowhead against the playoff team. Right away, the Bills are going to know where they stack up against a former playoff team in the AFC. We have matchups like Chicago and Atlanta, who were a playoff team last year. Tampa Bay and Detroit, two teams that everyone talks about as emerging teams. Yep. They'll play. Sam Bradford versus Michael Vick inside a dome on turf. So I just kind of wanted to put into words just how great the first week of the NFL season is going to be and how great it is that we don't have to miss that. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Kerry J. Byrne. And then after that, Don and I are going to take a guess at some over and unders for the NFL season. Sounds good. Our next guest is from Quincy, Massachusetts. He is a graduate of Boston College. He has created the revolutionary cold, hard football facts concept and is the nation's foremost authority on the gridiron lifestyle of beer, food, and football. He is the main man at cold, hard facts, footballfacts.com. He contributes columns to SI.com, WEEI in Boston, and he's also a food and drinks writer for the Boston Herald. He has contributed work to Esquire, Penthouse, Boston Magazine, and Yankee Magazine. He took first place at the Pro Football Writers of America 2007 Writing Awards. At the 2009 Awards, he earned three honors more than any other outlet or writer in the country. And in 2010, he did it again. 
a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Kerry J. Byrne. How are you doing today, Kerry? Dude, I love it. The Boston College fight song and the great intro. And yeah. Sounds like I wrote it myself. I appreciate it. <laughs> How are you doing today, Kerry? Are you, are you as pumped as I think everyone is that football's back and we don't have to talk about stays and lawyers and legal issues and just all that nonsense? Well, I'm definitely pumped with getting closer, but I still, my, I still, you know, I understand I follow what's going on with free agency and all this and all that and the behind-the-scenes stuff, but to me, it, it just doesn't really count until they're actually playing the games on, on Sunday. That's what I'm all about. That's what we do at ColdHardFootballFacts.com. We break down games. We break down numbers that help you win football games on Sunday. Some really interesting stats, stats that people should look at if they don't. Uh, and so I'm really, I won't be truly fired up, though, until, until kickoff, uh, you know, about six weeks from now. So that's when I really get into my, my sweet spot and my comfort zone, and that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. So let's kind of start with the website. You kind of mentioned it a little bit. Where did the idea come, and, and kind of what is the general mission of the website? Well, you know, we, we launched ColdHeartFootballFacts.com in 2004. I literally started it. We built it one night with a guy who was a web designer in his apartment one night in, in September 2004, the night before the season. And, and it began, I just uh, had always been a huge football fan. I played football. I was a great high school football player, of course, like, like, <laughs> like many people. Uh, and, uh, you know, not so much. But, you know, love football. I coached a little high school football and always followed it. But I was really came at it from a statistical point of view. And, and I found that, you know, people always talked about certain stats, got hyped up about certain stats, but... When I began to look at what a good team's good at and what a good team, what a bad team's bad at, I, I found a lot of numbers that are important that the, the general public and even analysts, even people who cover football regularly who we expect to know better, they really didn't know what it took to win a football game. They really did not. And there was all this mythology around football. You know, how many times have you heard you got to establish the run and things like that? Well, you know, uh, I just started looking at, you know, the stats that really matter. We call them quality stats, and they're kind of the foundation of, ColdHardFootballFacts.com. The stats have a direct correlation to winning football games, and and you know, kind of the team. I'm up in Boston. The team that kind of set me off, that kind of that inspired the creation of the site, were the 2003 Patriots. I don't know if you uh, remember that team, Steve, but that that team went 14 and two, won the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, they were a great team. They were a really great team, but they didn't win pretty. They weren't. They weren't kind of. They didn't look dominant to people. People thought they were boring. And I remember when they were going to play the. And Tom Brady wasn't a great quarterback. He was lucky to be, you know, with Bill Belichick. And all these things, and I started looking, wait a minute, they were actually really, really good in a lot of numbers that, that traditionally great teams were good at, and they just didn't get credit for it. So, cold football football there is an attempt to uncover, you know, uh, the statistical secrets to winning football games in the NFL. So, just as kind of an easy reference and a way to kind of understand the site a little bit better, Last year, the Green Bay Packers were the world champions. So what was it statistically that enabled, as you say, the Packers to win football games and eventually be the champions of the league? Well, not, not only were they the Super Bowl champion, but they were number one across the board in our quality stats. They were the number one team across the board in all our indicators, if you average them across the board. And the number two team, by the way, well, were, were the AFC champion Steelers. So even though Green Bay was 10-6, and six, they were number one across the board in the stats we look at. And what we look at specifically, Steve, we look at efficiency indicators. We don't look at volume indicators. People, especially fantasy football fans, they obsess about big volume numbers. But big volume numbers don't matter. They don't help you win football games. In fact, you know, fantasy fans say, oh, what did I do for 400 yards? Yeah, but you know what? 
if you threw for 400 yards, you probably lost the game. Right. We looked at efficient. What was this average per attempt? You looked historically, guys with high average per attempt, high passer rating, high touchdown to interception ratio, and they win football games. And so Green Bay was number one in several of our indicators. Uh, they were number one in what we call bendability. That's a measure of defensive efficiency. It's not just how many yards you give up. Yards are a completely useless measure of offense and defense. It's about efficiency. So our bendability index is a measure of how many yards a team needs to generate against you to score a single point. And Green Bay was number one in that indicator. Uh, Green Bay was number two in what we call defensive pass rating, Steve. We take the formula for quarterbacks and we apply them to pass defense. And throughout history, you'll find teams that are great in defensive pass rating are great teams. And Green Bay was number one in that indicator last year, the best pass defense in football. And nobody knew it they were working at yards, okay? And then the third, the mother stat in all of football history is what we call passer rating differential. This, this subtracts your defensive passer rating from, from your team-wide offensive passer rating. And Green Bay was number one in that indicator as well. They had a great passing offense and a great passing defense. And if you look historically, this is, we just discovered this, this summer, we went through every NFL champion since 1940, okay, 71 NFL champions, 40 of them, 56%, were number one or number two in passer rating differential. Even wow. back in the 40s and 50s, if you're the best passing team on both sides of the ball, you were the champion. Even if it's not a recent phenomenon, the NFL's always been a passing league. Uh, the 1960s Packers, the dynastic Packers, led the NFL in defense and then passer rating differential four times. The Packers have led the NFL in their history, uh, in pass rating differential seven times. They've been number one in pass rating differential. They won six NFL titles of Super Bowls, and one year they lost the Super Bowl to the Broncos. So it, just the Packers alone give, kind of prove the merit of our quality stats at value efficiency over volume. Well, I'm a really big New Orleans Saints fan, so tell me a little bit about our 2009 team and what statistically I, I think, made I, I, them I, I, that team, good. Steve, I'm glad you mentioned them. Number yep. one across the board in all of our quality stats the 2009 Saints, just like the 2010 Packers. The number two team in 2009 across the board in our indicators uh, was Green Bay. And one reason I picked Green Bay to win the Super Bowl before the start of last season because they were a team rising in our quality stats. And the number two in 09 across the board, and the number three team across the board in our stats uh, was Indianapolis, the top AFC team and also the AFC champion. So when you look at our numbers, Steve, if you look, and, I'm, and I'm not just saying that we have the data to back it up, our numbers work. If you're good in our numbers, you're a dominant team on the field. We don't look at meaningless numbers. So uh, the 2009 Saints are a perfect example. Uh, they were number one uh, across the board on our stats. They were number one in passer rating differential. I just told you that was the mother stat, right, in all of yep. football history. The Saints were number one in that indicator because Drew Brees had a great season passing the ball. Not only that, the 2009 Saints were number three in defensive passer rating. They were, they were only 23rd in yards allowed on pass defense. So people said, Peyton Manning's going to chew them up. And we said, no, 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 no. Peyton Manning's going to make a critical mistake that's going to cost him the game because he's facing one of the best pass defenses in football. And what happened? Tracy Porter. Pick six to Tracy Porter. Yep. We, the game went perfectly as our numbers told us it would go. And, and so that's just another example of a team that, uh, again, 23rd in pass yards allowed, but third in defensive pass rating. And, uh, you know, just, just a team that really, uh, Dominated all our numbers and dominated across, you know, dominated across the season and won the Super Bowl. So something that really made me think there when you were talking is you said that you picked last year the Packers to win the Super Bowl because they were the team in the rise. Who were the teams on the rise last year as the Packers won the Super Bowl? Is there a team that you look at in this coming year to 
to be an emerging team that could surprise some people? Is, is yeah, there's, there's a couple. There's a couple teams that I don't think they have what it takes to win the Super Bowl yet. But three, three teams I really think you have to look at that I think are going to make a surprising impact. Can I try to guess? Uh, Detroit. Detroit just kind of shut up, shut up, shut up the charts and all of our stats. And under Jim Schwartz, had a tough season in 2009, but really improved. And we did a piece with Sports Illustrated about this. And I don't know all the numbers off the top of my head, but. They, they like leapfrog 15 or 16 teams out of 32, wow. and almost every single one of our indicators last year. They had vast improvement across the board in almost every indicator. Uh, St. Louis, too. I mean, these are two teams that combined to win, I think, a total of five games in 08 and 09. Those improved, I mean, combined. One of those wins was a win by the Rams over the Lions. Right. Uh, so both teams improved dramatically in 2009. And I think both teams have a very legitimate shot at reaching the playoffs. And then kind of another underground team that I don't think is getting enough credit is Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay was number two on what we call our offensive hog index, our measure of offensive lines. Josh Freeman, really not on the national radar screen, but his efficiency numbers are through the roof. A great touchdown-interception ratio, a great passer rating last year. I think that box are like fourth and team-wide passer rating. Uh, really a team with, with a shot to really... Uh, really make some noise in, in the uh, NFC South next year. So those are three teams I see rising. I don't think any of them are legit Super Bowl contenders yet, but I would not be surprised if, if all three reach, a, reach the playoffs this year. You mentioned Tampa Bay. Now, they're a team with a lot of money to spend in free agency in the next few days. According to your numbers, what would be the, the smartest way for them to, to spend that money? What do they need to do to, to not just be an emerging team, but to be a contending team? The uh, well, you know, one thing is I think they have to put a little bit of help uh, uh, around Freeman. I think I don't think he has quite all the weapons yet. You know, you know that's a team, that's a team who might we tend to tell people to avoid kind of going after uh, wide receivers because uh, wide receivers really don't have a big impact. But I think Tampa is one of these teams that's strong enough in a lot of a lot of ways. Uh, you know, strong enough in enough areas. You know, strong in enough areas that they could really benefit from from another weapon there on offense. But uh, specifically, the one big weakness tip they had last year was uh, they were number 31 on our defensive hog index, our measure of each defensive front. And you really, you, you tied to win in the NFL without without a good group of what we call defensive hogs. For example, we introduced the defensive hog index in, in 2007. The number one team that indicated was the New York Giants. They won the Super Bowl. The number one team that had defensive hog index in 2008 was the Pittsburgh Steelers. They won the Super Bowl. The number one team in the indicator last year was Pittsburgh, who won the AFC title. Uh, and the number one team, one of the one of the measure, one of the, uh, one piece of our defensive hog index, is your ability to force negative pass plays. That's a sack or INT. Right. And the number one team in that indicator was Green Bay, and it was of course a negative pass play, much like the Saints against the Colts in uh, in the previous Super Bowl, with a negative pass play, a pick six. That really proved the difference in Green Bay's win over Pittsburgh this past year. So, uh, you know, Tampa really, they could not stop the run last year. So they were 31st in run defense. They were 21st in forcing negative pass plays. They were 31st in third down defense. So they really, they got to find some, some beef up front to, to really upgrade those defensive blocks and really make them a legit big time contender. Like I said, they're a team that could make the playoffs this year, maybe with a great, a great upgrade in the defensive odds. Maybe they become a Super Bowl contender. I wouldn't count on it, but you know they have a, they have a lot of good pieces in place. 
You mentioned uh, that you usually don't like to pick up receivers because you said they weren't, they don't make that big of an impact. And I seen you mentioned, I don't know if it was on Twitter and in an article recently, that uh, a good quarterback makes wide receivers better as opposed to good wide receivers making quarterbacks better. And it, it got me to think about Larry Fitzgerald in Arizona. If yep. Kevin Cobb ends up on Arizona like a lot of people think, can we expect a really huge year from, from Larry Fitzgerald this year? Uh, you know, I, I mean, listen, he had, a, he had a big year last year, put up big numbers last year, but the team was awful. I mean, he was the only one catching passes, and I think what happens is you have uh, untested quarterbacks like, like uh, you know, like, like uh, Arizona had last year, that they, they, they kind of turn to these guys too much. So I don't think Kevin Cole is the answer. I know there's a lot of buzz about him. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, think he's the answer. I know, you know, uh, you know obviously... Uh, the Eagles put put a lot of faith, faith in him last year when they made him the starter with Michael Vick on the roster, and then of course, you know, the injury changed everything and stuff like that. But I, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if Cole is a guy. It's really, I still think there's, I, I still think they need to find kind of a franchise quarterback. Maybe Kevin Cole proves me wrong, and I wish he does. I hope he does. You know, nothing against him. I just don't know if we've seen enough seen enough out of him to to expect that to happen. You know, but I mean, with that said, Larry. You know, Larry Fitzgerald is a premier premier receiver, but premier receivers don't do very good on the on their own. And what we call it, we call it we call it the we used to call it the shiny hood ornament theory. And that's a theory that wide receivers are nothing but glitchy eye catching ornaments on the hood of an NFL offense. That they you know, they're really not the they're really not the engine that powers anything. They just look good, people are attracted by them, but they don't really have a big impact. Because, you know, a lot of things have to go right before that receiver touches the ball. Look at even if the great Jerry Rice might have touched the ball four or five times a game. You know, that's the best receiver of all time. And his impact was still in the big picture was kind of minimal. And, and I just think if you look throughout history, and especially in 2010, uh, teams that chase wide receivers usually struggle. It's, it's just really all about the quarterback. And I, I don't, again, to bring it back to the original point, I don't think Cole is, is necessarily the answer in, in Arizona, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. An interesting team, as I'm looking over some of the stats on the website, is the San Diego Chargers. They were number four on your 2010 defensive passer rating. They were number two on the defensive hog rating. They were right in the middle, well, a little bit better than middle, number 13 on the defensive hog rating. Is this a team that can, with improved special teams this year, really be a big con- competitor in the AFC East or West? And the AFC in I general. Think, I think I think it's so much more than that. I think this is a team that doesn't know how to win. They were a statistical juggernaut last year. Uh, we said, you know, that we had in my in my old high school yearbook, we had a, a you know the, the best and worst in your high school yearbook. We had yeah. something called Proxmos says least, and and that honor went to a, a good friend of mine, this this girl Janet, who I'm still friends with twenty something years later. Uh, but she talked a lot, but didn't really say much. And that's what San Diego is, you know. They're, <laughs> They're much less than the sum of their parts. They do. Their numbers are great. Their stats are great, but they just can't. They just can't get it done on on game day. And I, I don't know what it is about. And I know the special teams are a problem, but but not bad enough to explain their nine and seven record despite their statistical dominance. And, and this goes back to our Chargers history. They always have kind of these great, attractive, sexy teams. You know, going back going back to the nineteen sixties and the NFL days with Lance Allworth and, and John Hato and. In the 1970s and 80s, you know, with all those, you know, all the great offensive talent they had playing around Dan Fouts. And then, you know, Philip Rivers is, is one of the most prolific passes in history. But for some reason, this organization doesn't 
get it done. I'm just looking at them last year. They were they were number one in passing yards per attempt, which is usually a critical indicator of success. Number one in defensive passing yards per attempt. Number one tied with Pittsburgh actually on a defensive hog index. Uh, a team that did a lot of things right, but just they just play poor. They play poor situational football. They they do a lot of things wrong in in key situations, and and I don't really know how to explain it. They they're kind of a they're kind of a they're kind of an unusual team in that respect. That they're you know every no you know stats are not hard and fast, especially when we're talking about you know flawed humans playing the games. But uh, you know for some reason this team just consistently week after week could not could not get it done in crunch time and just should have been better better than some of their pods. They really should have. Well, we're in Buffalo. And just for the sake of some laughs, let's talk about the Bills for a second. They finished 32nd in your quality stats rank last year. Your post, your off-season power rankings have them at 29. Is there anything statistically that you've studied that gives any reason of hope for Bills fans and people in Buffalo, or are they just a lost cause? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to pile on, but uh, no, pile you know, on, please. It's just, uh, there's not a lot. There's not a lot of. There's not a lot to hang your hat on right now. Uh, you know, the problem is, you know, a lot of it begins with the quarterbacking situation, and and they don't have a, a really a legit, uh, you know, legit NFL quarterback on the roster. They don't, and and that just seems to be a big problem. They seem to always have playmakers. They seem to always have some great, great special teams players, but just, you know, they just they just too bad in too many areas. I hate to say it. You know, I'm just looking at it last year. Their best quality stat in 2010, they were number 18 on our offensive hog index. Woohoo! You know, that, 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 you know, our measure of offensive line, that was it. They were not even in the top half of the league. They were dead last on our defensive hog index and dead last overall on our quality, you know, overall quality stats. I mean, they did, they, they could do nothing right. They, you know, they couldn't pass the ball well, but they made up for it by failing to, to stop the pass. You know, we talked about the importance earlier, pass rating differential that, you know, 40 of 71 chance or number one. Were, Number one and number two, we've widened that indicator. You know, Buffalo was 28th in that indicator last year. Uh, you know, they scored 17 points or fewer in 11 of their 16 games. Uh, they just they just don't have the firepower. They just uh, poorly managed, poorly coached, and uh, you know, I hate to say it, the NFL is all about management. There's so many players, so many coaches, so many moving parts, uh, so much you know, capology involved, and. Well-managed teams win after year after year, and poorly managed teams lose year after year. And I don't, I don't see a lot of hope that that Buffalo right now is going to break break out of that. You know, kind of break out of that anytime soon. So as we get ready to to start training camps here, what what are some storylines that you're really interested in following? What are what are some se- some things that have to play out over the next couple of weeks that you're really interested in seeing the development of? Hey, by the way, can I just mention one thing about Buffalo? I'm just looking sure. through some of our offseason analysis of yeah. talking. Yeah. Uh, this is how little hope we have for Buffalo in, oh, our, no. in our totally premature 2011 diagnosis. We said uh, the likely best case scenario is this a half season of replacement players. Doug Flutie comes out of retirement to cross the ticket line. The Bills go, you know, and sneak into the playoffs at 10 and 6 when the real dudes come back. <laughs> so that was kind of, that was kind of our, our off-season assessment of the hopes in Buffalo. I'm not trying to pile on, but just, uh, you know, just kind of our take. So in any case, your, your next question, Steve, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, my next question was just, uh, as we get started here with training camp, is there any storylines that you're looking to follow that interest you and will impact the season in six weeks from now? 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I think what we're going to see specifically, I think it's going to be a case of the kind of the rich get rich and the, and the poor get poorer, which, you know, Devin Polk was telling, you know, say for Buffalo and, and teams like that. But I think, uh, you know, things are going to be so hurried in the next few weeks. I think there's going to be a lot of mistakes made in free agency. I think there's going to be people, you know, spending too much to get players from the roster real quick and maybe some players, you know, some teams kind of striking it rich and getting lucky because, you know, the player might be anxious as well to to get on our roster and get his name signed and, and won't be able to fill out the market like he used to. But, you know, the same goes for teams. I think there'll be a little bit of chaos, and I just want to see where, they, where you know, where the chips may fall. And uh, I think it'll be real interesting. I'm, I'm always interested in the quarterbacks. I want to oversimplify the NFL, but the league really is all about the quarterback, and we see it time again, year after year. If you have a great quarterback, that's half the battle. That's more than half the battle. That's 75 80% of the battle. We know... We know the Colts are going to be good this year. We know the Patriots are going to be good this year. We know the Steelers are going to be good and the Saints because they have great quarterbacks. And, and the Packers have now a great elite quarterback, and they're going to be good again this year. So uh, there's all these teams jostling, you know, jostling position. And let's see how, you know, some of these rookies play out. You know, can Jake Walker make an impact in Tennessee? You know, Kerry Collins is gone. They gotta, he's going to get hurried onto the field. Uh, things like that. So I'm just kind of, you know, watch and wait and, and see how it evolves. And then, you know, the numbers will tell us you know, will tell us who made the right decisions and who made the wrong decisions. And numbers, the cold out football facts will tell us, you know, who, who did right and who did wrong in this kind of hurried, crazy period of free agency this month. In a small sample size, you can usually have some crazy numbers. About what week do your number do you look at your numbers on coldhardfootballfacts.com and say, okay, the, the stats are really starting to tell the story, and these teams are going to be the teams that in the long run are going to be at the head of these statistical categories. Yeah, I think it usually happens around week 10 or week, 10 or week 11. And, uh, you know, we noticed that we have a new product coming out on uh, CHFS, Cold House, Football Facts Insider, where we're going to kind of, uh, you know, put our quality stats on steroids. We're going to tell you uh, the correlation of victory, how often a, uh, a team wins when they win a particular statistical battle, I'm going to tell you the predictive rate of victory, how often you win a game when you're better in a particular stat than another team, and, and that's not what we're supposed to launch yet soon, but, you know, what, what we found is that uh, just looking at kind of the correlation of victory, that around week 10 or week 11, uh, you know, teams, really, you start really seeing, wow, you know, if you're better in the stat, you know, you kind of have a, enough, enough data in the background to, to know, you know, how things are going to play out. And, you know, looking at just some of our, you know, Stats, you know, if you're better in passing yards per attempt in a particular game from, you know, week 10 on, you know, this is the record of team 12 and 1, 12 and 2, 13 and 3, 13 and 3, 14 and 2. So, uh, you really start to see that, you know, our numbers really start to bear fruit about week 10, week 11. And that really helps us with our predictions, too, Steve, because we, we, we put out, you know, we put up butt on the line every week. We, we pick, we're not a gambling site, but we, we put out our numbers. We put out our predictions, you know, every week. We pick every game against the spread. And last, we haven't had, uh, we went the entire season from Halloween to the, to the title games without a single losing week kicking games against the spread. Wow. Uh, we had a couple eight, eight weeks in there, but, you know, if you were, if you were, you know, a wagering man and followed our picks, you know, you, you made money and you almost never lost money. You know, it's just, because uh, uh, we start, we just trust our numbers. I don't go by what I think or what we think. Oh, you know, I really think this team is better, but, you know, if the numbers tell us something, we put up faith in them, and you know we're not right on everything. But if you if you put faith in those numbers, if you put faith in our numbers, they do start to bear fruit, especially uh, later in the year, where you know, like in the playoffs, some of our indicators 
or you know, ten and one, nine and two, identifying you know playoff winners. You know, just looking at a single indicator. And like I said, Green Bay was number one across the board in our indicators last year. They they won the Super Bowl. Pittsburgh was number two across the board. They they won the AFC title. So, uh, but it does take a critical mass of data for the first few weeks of the season uh, before you know before those numbers start to bear fruit. The sportscasters are here with Kerry J. Byrne from ColdHeartFootballFacts.com. You can also find him on SportsIllustrated.com, W-E-E-I, and you can find him on Twitter, at FootballFacts. Just one more thing before I let you go. I mentioned in your bio that I read off the top that you are the authority of the gridiron lifestyle. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the gridiron lifestyle is? <laughs> well, the other thing besides, you know, we crunch numbers at ColdHeartFootballFacts, and we have a lot of fun doing it. The stuff is written kind of entertainingly. It's not boring. It's not dry. Uh, there's really, you know, it's just fun because, you know, there's a football culture. We call it the design lifestyle, beer, food, and football. But I think I'm probably, I know I'm uniquely qualified to be the guy to talk about that. I'm also, in my spare time, I've been a food writer at the Boston Herald for many years and, and, uh, also wrote about beer. I used to travel all over Europe in the off season, all over America, visiting breweries, writing about beer and don't do that so much anymore. But that's what I did for many years. And, uh, you know, wrote about beer for the magazines, for Esquire magazine, Yankee magazine, some really uh, the Condé Nast publications. That's what I did. I wrote about beer and I wrote about food and loved the tailgate. So when I launched Cold Heart Football Facts in, in 2004, I, I incorporated a lot of them in the site. So you can come and come to Cold Heart. You can find out why, you know, why Team X is better than Team Y and what indicators make us think they're going to win and, and why so-and-so made a good decision, you know, Patriots. You know, maybe didn't make a good decision re-signing Morgan Mankins, which it, which it looks like they're going to do uh, today, tomorrow. Uh, we can tell you why that's a bad decision, why that's a good decision. But we can also tell you, uh, uh, you know, we have recipes from Don Shuler's Steakhouse. We have recipes from, from Sammy Hagar, you know, from the Chiquita Tequila. And, <laughs> and we have recipes from different celebrities and, and different football fans. We have the recipe for the Roethlisberg out of, out of Pepsi Sandwich Shop in Pittsburgh. Uh, we have beef on wet out of Buffalo. We have we have mm. how to make real beef on wet out of Buffalo. How to make your own come wet buns and and uh, just regional. We have how to make bratwurst straight from the executive chef at Lambeau Field in Green Bay. So we have a lot. We we try to put together the total package of not just great football analysis, but you know the food and fun and tailgating aspects that we all that we all kind of enjoy. So now that you're making me hungry and thirsty. I got to tell you this: we live in Buffalo, and everyone here drinks Canadian beer, swears by it. In your opinion, you've you've traveled the world. Where do you get the best beer? The best beer you get in the United States of America. You do. I've been to every great brewery in Europe, but you know how it, how it works in Europe is if you live in a particular city, say Bamberg in in in, in northern Bavaria, one of the world's great brewing cities. But you only get you get Keller beer. You get Ralph beer, which is a smoked beer. You get you know you get lager, you get Dunkel, which is a dark dark lager. You only get a couple of different styles of beer. Even the Munich, the great, you know, home of the Oktoberfest. You get Hellas, which is light beer. You get Dunkel. You get wheat beer. You get Pilsner. Here in any major city in America, you can get any beer. You can get all those beers. You get all the local beers. You can get great creativity. Uh, we really, you know, there's more breweries in the United States than any country in the world right now. We have more creativity, more breweries, just more... Uh, just more interest in beer culture than, than, believe it or not, any other nation in the world. So it, it's a great time and a great place to be a beer lover if you live in the United States. So now, correct me if I'm wrong, but your favorite all-time beer is Peels, correct? 
Is that even still around? No, I, no, I have a funny story. <laughs> I was a little kid. I was probably like six or seven, and the Sa- there was a Sabres game on. And my dad had some friends over, and he sent my mom out to get beer for him and the guys, and she brought back Peels. And I'll never remember. He was so embarrassed. He's like, how could you bring Peels for me and my friends? You know, there's Labatt's and Molson and Coors, and you brought Peels. So it's always... It's always stood out in my mind as something real funny, and uh, I got a buddy one time. We were at a bar, and he was standing behind me, and I was buying the drinks, and I, I, I asked the bartender, I said, you know, I'll have one blue, and I'll have one Peels. Bartender looked at me, he's like, we don't serve Peels here, so I turned back to my buddy, and I said, hey, man, they don't got it. What else do you want? <laughs> and so I set him up. <laughs> well, you know, I like, uh, you know, I've been known to drink a Pabst Blue River from time to time and things like that. All I, you know, all I know is if you like it, that's, oh, that's all that matters, man, you know, and, uh, I'm not. I'm not a snob because I drink plenty of cheap beer too, and it's all good, man. Whatever you like, and and beer is beer is really the great, you know, it's just the, the great social beverage, and the reason why we humans drink more of it than anything else in the world. So, all right, Kerry J. Byrne, ColdHeartFootballFacts.com. Find him on Sports Illustrated. You can find him at WEEI. You can find him on Twitter at Football Facts. It's been really fun. Thanks a lot for doing it, and hopefully we can do it when your numbers start to build up, and we can talk about more specific things in the 2011 football season. Thank you very much. All right. Great, Steve. I appreciate your time, man. Good luck this year. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Gary. All right. The sportscasters are back for one last segment of the end of the lockout. Super spectacular got to thank all our guests today, Gabe Feldman, John P. Lopez, Kerry J. Byrne. They were all awesome. We covered this thing, the National Football League, every which way today. And I just wanted to mention a few things, a few plugs here. Make sure you check out our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash sports underscore casters. Don is there. He is at DonLikeSports, and I am at Diversity23. Don't be afraid to email us if there's anything you think we missed here on our Lockout Spectacular or our other show, our Major League Baseball Deadline Show, episode number 32 with Matt Crossman and Ben Nicholson-Smith. You can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can also find our blog. We've been blogging a lot more recently, at least I have, (laughs) at thesportscasters.blogspot.com. I think I have another The Greatest Night in WWF History column. And also I have another column up that I wrote the other night that I have cannot remember what it is about. So Don's going to find out. And also you can find all this stuff at our website. If you ever wanted to know where we are on Facebook or Twitter or Gmail and you can't remember, you can find it at our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us there. We have a little info, some pictures of us. If you're really wondering how ugly we are, you can, uh, you can find that there. <laughs> Eight great reasons to love the 80s. That's right. I did an 80s column the other night, which is up. So the last thing we're going to do here today before we let you go is we're going to make a, a three, four predictions that are just way too early to make. The first one we're going to make is we're going to pick who the NFL AP Offensive Rookie of the Year is going to be. And this was this idea was brought to us by Bodog.eu, I guess it is, or... I don't know. Just search Gambling site, Bo- just, yeah. just search Bodog and you'll find it. They have odds for the NFL AP Offensive Rookie of the Year. 
If you want Julie, Julio Jones, you're going five to one. Cam Newton twelve to one. AJ Green six to one. Mark Ingram six to one. Christian Ponder ten to one. Danielle Thomas fourteen to one. Ryan Williams fourteen to one. Andy Dalton fifteen to one. A bunch of guys have odds. Lockers fifteen to one. Gabbert's twenty two to one. Who you like, Don? I'm going to go with the pick that uh, you might make, and that's Mark Ingram. I think the Saints are a team that, A, they have an established offense. Uh, they have a, a, a man in charge back there in Drew Brees that... Probably, Not a douchebag, by the way. <laughs> no. I just want to clear that up, punter. Probably won't. It probably isn't going to be... Their offense won't be as uh, hurt as other teams maybe because of the lessened schedule as far as time to prepare. And it's a team that has kind of been searching for an every down back. They, they like Pierre Thomas, but he can't stay healthy. Uh, who was the guy they had last year? Chris Ivory. Chris Ivory, another nice player, but maybe Banged not. Banged up and an overachiever. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, they get a, a college stud in Mark Ingram, plug him in, and uh, running back's usually the one position on offense, too, that you don't, it doesn't take too long to adjust to. So I'm going to go with Ingram. Yeah, running back is always the spot where you feel like players can make an impact right away. Right. And they can get out on the field. They can get their carries. It's, it's, the thing about running back is, excuse me, it's about instinct. You know, it's not necessarily about learning how to run routes or anything like that. It's really about instinct. And you get the ball, hand off, and go. And you're right, I am going to go with Mark Ingram. It's maybe the cliche thing of me to do, but it just makes sense. Everything is set up for him. He just needs to go in, and he needs to just carry the ball the way he did in college. As kind of a sleeper, I think one of the quarterbacks could steal it. Andy Dalton, maybe we talked about, is going to get to start in Cincinnati. Cam Newton is going to start. I'm not really a big Cam Newton guy. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what the Jaguars do, who they're starting quarterback. But for now... I'm happy with Mark Ingram. Do the uh, I should know this, but do the do the players up until this point have they even had a playbook yet? No, I, I think that hurts the quarterbacks a little bit more too. I know I think Sam Bradford won last year, right? Yes. I mean Sam, he he looks like he's going to be a stud in the league one of these years, but he also had the full slate of preseason games and yeah, young quarterbacks practices. are going to be hurt. So, I mean, I think in that respect, there's a lot of good young quarterbacks uh, that were drafted, but I I think they're going to have a tough time this year. The second thing is odds to win the NFL AP Defensive Rookie of the Year. Some odds from Bodog. Patrick Peterson, 6-1. Nick Fairley, 13-2. Von Miller, 13-2. Marcel Darius, 15-2. Jimmy Smith, not to be confused with former Jacksonville Jaguars receiver Jimmy Smith. Uh, He's 10-1. Alden Smith twelve to one, Bruce Carter fifteen to one, Adrian Claiborne sixteen to one, Cameron Jordan sixteen to one. Some other choices there. Where are you going, Don? Well, Patrick Peterson was called maybe the best player in the draft, just at a position that maybe isn't as sexy as quarterback or any of the players drafted in front of him. But I'm going to go with the homer pick. I'm going to say Marcel Darius, largely because the Bills were glaringly terrible at run stopping, and I think. He's diff- the difference he makes should be very, very noticeable. It's hard for tackles, I guess, to compile stats other than sacks. So Peterson might, if he has a bunch of interceptions, that maybe that's why they have him rated as the highest and most likely. But I'll stick with the homer pick and Darius. He's going to get every opportunity to win that job. And ex- I mean, he'll have the job. Just he'll, get, he'll be getting every opportunity to excel there. 
The next guy, the, the guy that I'm going to pick is Nick Fairley. And the reason I'm going to pick him is because I think his injury was overblown. He should have been picked a lot earlier than he was. He slid in the draft. And I think he's going to be a great player coming from Auburn. He's someone who could have been a first overall pick, only slipped because of the injury. I think he's going to be a beast on the defensive line, and I'll go with Nick Fairley. Playing next to Sue, too, right? Yep. I mean, that's, that's a nasty pair of tackles there. Okay, so the next column here is NFL MVP Aaron Rodgers eleven to two, Brady thirteen to two, Peyton Manning fifteen to two, Vic seventeen to two, Breeze ten to one. I think they might think it'll be a quarterback Don. <laughs> Philip Rivers twelve to one, Chris Johnson sixteen to one. Some long shots if Steven Jackson thirty five to one, Josh Freeman forty to one, uh, Stafford and Bradford are both forty to one. Uh, you can take the field at ten to one. Roddy White is fifty to one. Where are you going? I'm going to go with a favorite of yours, and Adrian Peterson. I think with the Favre fiasco finally out of the way, uh, they'll have a quarterback. Maybe not a great one, or maybe they'll even uh, trade for a nice upgrade to Tavarius Jackson. But he's going to be the man there. He's going to be given every chance to prove that. I mean, he not to prove he's proven it, but. He's going to be given every chance. They're not going to be throwing on third and one because Favre likes to throw on third and one anymore. The, the coach is going to be the coach. There's not going to be any distractions. And that's a good team still. Uh, so I'm going to go with Peterson. And you're going to get 20 to 1 odds for Peterson. I'm not sure if I, if I mentioned it. I'm going to go with Drew Brees. I think he's deserved to win the award a few times and hasn't. I like Ingram being back there. Brees is always better when there's balance right. in the offense. The Saints have been practicing together before anyone else had the idea, although they are going to have a little bit of turnover on the team. I mentioned how many free agents they do have, how many people to sign. I think it's a really, really steady situation for Drew. I think he just has to step back and make the throws. I think the team's going to be better. He threw a lot of interceptions last year, and he's competitive more than anyone I've ever known about. He's so competitive that I think he's going to be driven by those mistakes he made last year to be an even more perfect player and protect the ball. So I'm going to make an easy pick for myself and say I'll put 10-1 to 1 on Drew Brees. Last thing, way too early Super Bowl prediction. Don, just give me the two teams. Wow. Um, this is based on doing no research and knowing <laughs> where it's way too early, especially this year because of all the free agents. Let's say Baltimore finally uh, gets over the hump, maybe in a uh, farewell season for uh, Ray Lewis if they were to win it. Uh, let's say Baltimore and Atlanta for no good reason. I know you're not an Atlanta fan. I like, I like Roddy White. I like uh, no Atlanta will be good. They're a good. They're a very good team. I'm going to pick the New England Patriots. Tom Brady hasn't won a yeah. Super Bowl in seven years. Yep. I think they're due. They were close last year. I think they've improved over the offseason. I think they're going to represent their team and the AFC. And people would kill me if I didn't pick the Saints in the <laughs> NFC, right? So I'm just going to pick the Saints to play the, play the Patriots in the AFC. We've already beaten Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl. Hey, Tom Brady, why don't you step up? We'll beat you in the Super Bowl, too. I, I, like, uh, I like the Patriots pick. I said last year, I think, on Twitter that if Tom Brady would have won that Super Bowl, I might call him. Or if, if he made it to the Super Bowl, even with that team he had in front of him last year, he might have been the best quarterback ever. He still might be, but... Then they're going to be a better team than they, they were last year. They should be better, yeah, and that's, that's scary for the rest of the AFC. All right, I want to thank Gabe Feldman. I want to thank John P. Lopez. I want to thank Kerry J. Byrne. Don't forget to check out episode 32 with Ben Nicholson-Smith and Matt Crossman. I want to thank 
my mother for giving birth. I want to thank Don's mother for the same. <laughs> and we will be back next week. We have a NFL scout on the show next week. And more. We are out. Cue the hip. All right.